Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Aw Yeah! 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman for All Seasons by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale is the host of the Krypton Report podcast, our pal, returning guest, Tyler Patrick. Welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me back. And thank you for like inviting me to do this. And I feel honored because um, it's just one of those books that comes up as like, what's a great Superman book? You know, and it's it's always in that conversation. So when you asked me to do this, I was like, yes, let's do this. This one is an all-timer. And it's one certainly that we have discussed many times on the podcast before, but believe it or not, we've never done a standalone episode on the main Digging for Kryptonite feed. We've done a Patreon episode on For All Seasons. We've talked about this miniseries when we covered the post-crisis origins, when we did our Tim Sale tribute episode, and we talked about this as well as the Kryptonite story he had done with Darwin Cook. But this is the first time that we're actually doing a dedicated standalone episode and it more than deserves the spotlight. It more than deserves the revisitation. This is a story I've read probably more than any other or close to it when mm -hmm. it comes to Superman stories. It's one that I know I will continue to go back to for years to come. And speaking of our discussions about this, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like we had uh, an exchange over Facebook Messenger a while back where you had asked, what's a book, a Superman book that I would recommend to a new reader? Yeah, sounds right. And I said this. It's always yeah. with the disclaimer of it depends what the person's interests are, what their tastes are, what their experience with Superman might be from other media adaptations. But if we're talking about really just a blank slate who's asking for something great in the realm of Superman to read, this really is and has been and I think will continue to be at the top of my list. Does it fall similarly for you? Yeah. I mean... I feel like every time I go back to this book, there's something, there's a piece about reading this book. I don't, I, you know, and there's um, comfort. And every time I go back, like, um, the pairing of these two is the definition of like a less is more. Because, you know, he did, like, I've read books where it's overly written. And I've read books where, you know, you can feel like there could use some more dialogue. And this book just, there's always something to it. And, uh, my son Solomon asked me what I was podcasting on, 
<clears throat> and I told him that we were going to do this. And he was, oh, so you're doing someone else's podcast. And I said, yeah. And he asked about the book. And I said, Solomon, I think you're at a point, you're nine, that you might be able to read it and get something out of it. And then, you know, be one of those books you revisit in like four years, you know, and come back to it. I haven't read it. I want to say it's been about four years. I think I can't remember if it was 2019 or maybe 2020 that we we covered this. And what we did was we um we recorded it, but we spread it out. We reviewed each issue and dropped it on the first day of whatever season it was. Nice. And I think that was in 20, it might have been 2019. It was either 2019 or 2020, because it was at the old house. And so I haven't read it since then. And even then, when I read it, I was reading it in the sections. So it's been a little bit longer since I sat down and read the whole story. It's truly a masterpiece. I imagine anyone listening to this is familiar with the story, hopefully has read the story. This is one of those rare instances. I never want to discourage anyone from listening. But on the off chance you are listening to this and you've never read For All Seasons, maybe just save this episode. Take an hour and a half. Go to the DC app or go to your local comic shop. Grab the trade, give it a read. It's such a beautiful, stirring, emotionally resonant story. It's funny because I realize, I really do recognize that I don't know that an episode goes by where I'm where I'm not saying, oh, I was moved to tears and watching this or reading this. So <laughs> I do often have an emotional response to a lot of what we talk about. That's in part why we're talking about it, right? The things that I selected, the things that mean something to me and move me. But this is one probably more than any other that I, I really find myself having an emotional reaction to. Literally, page one, when we start with that Pa Kent narration, and he talks about how they call him the man of steel nowadays, but there was a time before when he was just a man's son, my son. And I, mm. right, right from the jump, <laughs> the, like, the oh, tears are forming. Like, oh, here it goes. You're like, here it goes. And this is something I, that has become more important to me since I've become a father and so much of that first issue in particular about Clark graduating high school, leaving Smallville, moving on to the next phase of his life, embarking on this larger superhero journey that we know awaits him. It's one of those things that I know as my son gets older and approaches that age and I come back to the story, I know this is just going to hit even harder. Yeah. I mean, Solomon just had his birthday last month and my wife pulled up a video it's like, oh, this video is from, I think she said 2017. Doesn't sound that long ago. But in the life of your child, that's a huge thing. And it was just three-year-old Solomon singing and clapping and smiling. And I was just like, man, sometimes like I miss that little guy, you know, like that. And so, you know, I I read this. So when I read it this time, we were going on like a family drive. And I was sitting in the back with the kids. And they're playing Switch. And so I pull up the my I got my iPad with me and I'm like, you know what? I'm like, this is a perfect time to read this. And I'm reading it next to my kids and just kind of glancing over at them as I'm reading and thinking. And it just like it resonates a little differently. You're like, hmm. Yeah, you're right, Pa. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did want to throw out real quick for any of the listeners, um, if they have a library membership, um, Superman for all seasons is on Hoopla. They have the most recent edition that has extra uh, stuff in it, as well as the uh, published version that I have from 2011. So if you are a library member and you have the Hoopla app, you can just download it and read it from there. That's a great tip. And kind of on that note, I do 
I, I will echo that and I will say that I have the original trade that they put out many years ago and I also have the most recently released updated edition, which in addition to that core four-issue miniseries from 1998, those four 48-page prestige format issues, it also has, like you said, these extras. So it includes three additional Superman stories by Loeb and Sale, essentially the three subsequent appearances of the Superman from For All Seasons. And one of them is a story from Tim Sale's issue of Solo, and it's called Prom Night, and it fits right within the time period of the first issue of For All Seasons, and it's narrated by Martha. So we actually mm -hmm. had a question from uh, one of our patrons, shout out to Brian Dempsey, who, who talked about how the different perspectives that we get in each of the issues is such an important part of the story. I couldn't agree more. We'll talk a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But he asks, is there one character we wish had, had had gotten that kind of spotlight if we could have had them as a narrator for an issue? And had it not been for that prom night story, I would have said Martha. But along came that prom night story, and it's just about six pages. Uh, but it's it's a great it's a great piece of additional material. And then in addition to that, there's also a two-page story from a Superman Batman annual uh, when Clark met Bruce. And that was, then, that was cute. Yeah, that it was, was a small, fun little little two-pager. Yeah. And then there's also the story from Superman Batman number twenty-six, I believe, which was the tribute to. Uh, Jeff Loeb's late son, Sam, and oh it's the story about Clark's classmate, Sam, uh, and how he was one. the one boy who could make Clark laugh, and then Dude. unfortunately he loses his battle with cancer. It's absolutely heartbreaking, but to just have all of the Superman collaborations by Loeb and Sale in one in one volume uh, is is really special, and I enjoyed going through all of them, even even the ones that, like that last one, that was, was hard to get through. It was really heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh my God, I was, I was in the back of the van and I was reading that. And at that point, Sailor was asleep. Solomon uh, <clears throat> was kind of, he's just playing by himself. And like, Jania was driving. My mother in law is talking up front. My father in law is asleep. My sister in law is asleep. I'm sitting in the back and I was reading that. And I'm just like, <clears throat> trying not to like, like, I'm just like, <sighs> breathing. I'm like, I'm just, because they're going to be like, what's wrong? I'm like, this story, so good, so harsh. No, absolutely. <clears throat> but it is, it's a tearjerker, but it's beautiful. It really is. So it's a beautiful we've talked a lot on the show about the various tellings of the origin, <laughs> particularly in the modern era. And I feel like there are different categories. I think there's the category that includes Burns, Man of Steel, Wade's Birthright, and Secret Origin from Jeff Johns and, mm -hmm. and Gary Frank, where you really have that soup to nuts telling of Clark's journey from Krypton to Superman and Metropolis. But then there's a story like this, like For All Seasons, that I think occupies its own space where it's more of this emotional retelling and sort of takes place in between some of those larger tentpole moments within the origin story. And again, in case anyone needs a refresher, For All Seasons tells a story of Clark's early days and beginnings as Superman. Each issue is set during a different season of the year and is narrated by a different member of the supporting cast. So we start off in spring with Pa Kent, then we move into summer with Lois, fall with Lex, and then winter with Lana. So that's the overall flow of this. And again, I think having each issue from a different perspective really 
elevates the proceedings. And there was some interview from Loeb that I came across at some point where he talked about how Superman is such an icon that telling any of these issues from his perspective didn't feel right. It felt like there needed to be, I don't know exactly what word he used, but maybe some element of, of mystery or, or distance, right? And not taking us into his head uh, in the way that he does with the other characters, but rather allowing the other characters and their perspectives of him to allow us to learn about the character. It's a fascinating device. Certainly there are plenty of stories where we do get Clark's internal monologue, and I love those just as much, but I like the use of this device, and it's one that Loeb continued when he took over the main Superman title in the early 2000s. And that was one of the things that I loved about it, especially upon revisiting it, where you had each issue mm -hmm. narrated by a different supporting cast member. I think there's, it also there's a humility to the story because it's not like you're learning about Superman, not only through his actions and through like, you know, the, the story and the, and the dialogue, but how others who are close to him in one way or another perceive him. And it's not like he's telling you who he is. You know, it's kind of like the actions speak louder than words. Like we're being told through the eyes of people who experienced him on a different level. Um, and I think it just, it works, but like also analyzing this, these seasons for what they represent emotionally and what the, the idea of the season, um, you know, so it makes such sense for spring. You think about spring, um, like, like in this, usually that's when people are, you know, leaving high school, but it's also when it's about new life. It's about beginnings, origins, about coming back and growing. And that's what Clark is doing. He's starting a new life. He's jumping off. He's growing. He's, you know, so the season is part of the emotional journey that he's going on. And <clears throat> having that from his father in that point of releasing his son into the world. Um, it is interesting to point out that summer, fall, and winter are like back-to-back -back seasons. I know you, what I mean is in the story, like spring... Like when we get to summer, it's not like it's that summer. Like there's been time that's passed. Right. So at the end from, of, or towards the end of that first spring issue, Clark leaves Smallville. And though it's not explicitly explained, right? We don't get uh, X number of years later. The, you know, our understanding is that a number of years have passed by the time we pick up with, uh, with the end of that issue and, and his time in, in, in Metropolis. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to say. And then summer that whatever year that would be that summer, that uh, fall and that winter are all connected in the story. But spring's kind of this outlier that's set a little bit, a few years in the past. Absolutely. I have to tell a quick anecdote because it, it just happened and it's so encapsulated a lot of these feelings conjured by the book. So 15 minutes before we started recording, I was down here in the studio and I had the book up on my screen on the, the DC app. And I was just taking one last scan through it before we sat down to record, just to make sure I had all my notes in order and, and just to refresh my memory. And as I'm looking through this, my wife was upstairs putting our, our four-year-old son to bed, or so I thought, but I guess he made a break for it. And all of a sudden <laughs> I hear the footsteps <laughs> coming down this. I left the, we have one gate left in the house and it's the one coming down here. And I left it open because I was like, all right, he's asleep. And as all of a sudden I hear the footsteps, he's not saying anything. I'm like, Hey, buddy, is that you? And so he comes in and, you know, inside, and my initial instinct is, you got to go to sleep, go to sleep. But I didn't say anything. And I was like, hey, what's up? 
And he's like, I just wanted to say goodnight again. And of course, my heart, my heart melts. And then, of course, once he's in here, I have as many toys as he does. So he's looking around mm-hmm. and everything. He comes to the showcase behind me and he sees the giant Superman pop. And he's like, "That wait, that the eyes on that one are like the other ones, but it's bigger. I'm like, yeah, like it's a giant size pop. And then I also have all of the Green Lantern rings. You know, they did all of the different color rings of the emotional spectrum. And, and I've gone through all of those with him before. He's seen them before, but he's looking at those again. And he's like, why is each one, each color is a different emotion? And he's like, why isn't blue sad? And I'm like, that's a good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I gave him a hug and he went back upstairs and I just, it's one of those things. And I've really tried as a parent over these past few years to be, to be present and to be mindful of this, how quickly it goes. There's a line from Jonathan in, in issue one where he says, I never thought about our time together until it grew too short. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, the moment when he walked in, the page I was on was the page where Jonathan and Clark are having a talk out in the field. And mm. we see, you know, up in the foreground of, of the scene is Martha. So we see Martha observing this conversation between Clark and Jonathan, and we continue to hear Jonathan's narration. And he says, there are things about being a father I'll remember for all of my days. And he talks about how uh, holding, learning, learning how to hold Clark and get comfortable holding him as a baby, uh, seeing him stand up for the first time in his crib, watching him toddle outside and open the screen door. And so as I'm looking at this page and thinking about the passage of time and all of these milestones in our child's life, he, you know, he comes down and we have this little interaction and I just, I just relished that moment and just reminded myself there will be a time, probably not long from now, where I would love for him to come in and want to look at all of this stuff and he'll have other things that <laughs> he'll want to do. And I just, again, it's something that I just, I always try to be mindful of, but again, just an example of how this <laughs> resonates and that we have this personal connection to it. It, it means so much. I mean, <clears throat> as we were sitting here talking, you saw my daughter slip down here, grab me, pulled me as I kissed me and said, good night, daddy, and ran back upstairs. Um, and, you know, like you stated, it's having that thought, like be in the moment, like just, just be there um, at the time because you might be busy and, like I was telling you earlier, like, you, you know, three years, no, three years. That's n- really nothing for you and I I'm like, okay. Yeah. I was a little younger, but you know, but three years for them, that's a huge part of their existence and where they've grown from. And you know, that the time goes by and you're watching it and you're there. And you know, we, neither of us are at that point yet where, we're saying goodbye to our kid, but you know, if we'll, we'll probably still be podcasting and I'll be telling you Solomon left for college and you'll be like, yeah, my, my was getting close. You know, he's in school. And we'll just be sitting here and be like a whole hour of us just crying <laughs> and be like, <laughs> like the father's day weeping episode. I got to I got to tell a quick dad anecdote and bear with me. I'll keep this quick, but I've been looking for an opportunity to tell this because <laughs> it, it, I don't know. It just, it really was a memorable moment. So at the beginning of January, we went to Disney world. So it was my wife, my son, myself, uh, my wife or my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law and her family. So a good group of us. And we had three days scheduled in the, in the parks. I was sick as a dog. My working theory is that it was food poisoning and stemming from some sushi that I had before we left. That's my working theory. 
I made it into the park for the first day. It was kind of queasy, but I made it through. It was uncomfortable, but I, 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 I stuck it out. The second day, I will spare everyone the details. Needless to say, I needed to be near a bathroom. So I, I couldn't go in the second day. And he was, Milo was very understanding. The third day, the final day in the parks, it was Magic Kingdom, including Jungle Cruise, which is his favorite mm. ride. Mm. And when they went early in the morning, I, I couldn't join them at that point. And at that point of the day, I kind of thought, I'm just going to hang out in the hotel again, and I'm probably not going to make it. And that's how I left it with them. And he was so sweet. He's like, it's okay, dad. I hope you feel better. And you know, my heart is breaking because I want to, I want to be there for that moment. And so a couple hours passed there, there. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want his memory of this trip to be, Hey, remember when dad was too sick to come on my favorite ride? Because as you know, there are certain things that just cement in their brains. Yep. Case in point, just about a year ago, I hurt my foot. And I could barely walk for a few days. And my wife, on one of those days, took him to the Bronx Zoo. And normally that's something either he and I would do or we would all do. So it was rare for me to not be at the zoo with him. But I kid you not, to this day, every now and then, randomly, he'll be like, remember when you hurt your foot and you couldn't come to the zoo? And I'm like, yep, I remember that. <laughs> it wasn't You're a great like, time. <laughs> just wait till, okay, so on a similar note, I was, one day I was like, I was just, I had my music on shuffle and Cats in the Cradle came on and like, I started crying a little bit. And someone was like, what's wrong, dad? Like, why are you crying randomly? And I was explaining how like, you know, hearing that song as a kid, the stuff I went through with my dad, like I was the kid in the song. I'm like, but now I'm looking at it like, I'm now the parent in the song. And am I implying the lessons I learned with you so that you don't grow up to be like, to, to hear, to see us in the song. And I was explaining the song to him. Well, skip ahead. I can't remember what it was. We were doing something. He asked to do something. And I was like, yeah, buddy, I don't know if I'll be. He goes, and the cats in the cradle. And I'm like, shut up, Solomon. I'm like, dang it, kid. I'm like, you know, pull that on me. He, and he started chuckling. And I was like, ah, oh, man. But, um, you know, the things we do because we want to be present for our kids. Like, I took a 3 a.m. flight back from San Francisco to make it back to Ohio in time to see their play. And I went to bed at like 11 o'clock in San Francisco. So like I got like two hours of sleep. I was at the airport. I mean, like I got home and I'm at, I'm at their play. And like as soon as their play was done, I, cr I crashed. I told him, I said, the next day, I was like, don't mess with daddy. I'll be asleep. Um, no, but, you I know, yes. It's like you said, the things that they'll remember and they don't. Because you think about stuff like with me, of like things I remember in that same context with my parents. Like, yeah, dad didn't do this or dad wasn't there for this. And you don't know why certain things resonate like they do. Exactly. So I had this moment in the hotel room where I was, I said, I am not going to let this be the memory. I am not going to let this be the narrative of this trip. And so <laughs> I willed myself to health. I was, I think I was coming to the end of it anyway, but I, I had a bagel, a plain bagel and some plain oatmeal and I settled my stomach and I just pulled myself together and I made it in and I got there and I texted my wife. I'm like, where are you? And this was, I, I'm not a religious person. This will actually come into play in part of our discussion here when we talk about Pastor Linquist, but 
you know, I went to a Catholic school for many years, so I have that history. I have all that baggage. <laughs> it's not really a part of my life now. But if there was someone, if there's someone up there, they were smiling upon me in that moment. Because when I texted her, I was like, I'm here. Where are you? She's like, oh, we're just about to go to Jungle Cruise. And I was like, well, I'm here. I said, but don't tell him. I said, don't tell my own. And so I, I caught up with them and she was holding him. So his his back was to me. And I, I just came up uh, behind him and I was like, hey, is this the way to Jungle Cruise? And he turned and the look on his face, honestly, if I had dropped a deuce in my pants in that moment, it would have been <laughs> worth it. Because it, the look on his face is something that I will treasure forever. He pulled the two of us in for like a family hug and he was so happy and it was far and away the highlight of my trip. But even now, you talk about the things that make the impression. It's been almost a couple of months since that. And every now and then I'll be like, how did you show up out of nowhere at Jungle Cruise? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I took the monorail, you know, was, there was a whole process, but- uh, You're like, I flew. Yeah. Superman. Well, I, yeah, a couple of times I've been like, well, daddy's got a little bit of magic, but but no, I mean, it was just one of those things where I was like, I want, I, this is the memory that I want to try to create for him. And the fact that it was able to work out, again, made the whole, save the trip uh, for me, because otherwise it was fairly miserable <laughs> for me. But uh but yeah, I mean, so, and again, I know you identify with all of this stuff, but it's, um, that's why I love this entire miniseries to death. That first issue in particular, and even the fourth one, uh, when, when we're back in Smallville for the flood, uh, th- those, but especially that first issue from Pa's perspective, it, it just, it just resonates so much. Oh, I mean, I think, I think for also for you and I, like, when, when did you first read this story? That's a good when you first question. Read I read it. Very close to when it was originally published. I wish I had a better memory. I don't think that I read this in single issue form as it was coming out. I think I read the trade that came out relatively shortly thereafter. That's my best recollection. But I will say, and I'm sure I've said this when we've talked about it before, it didn't, I enjoyed it the first time, but 98, I'm 11. I, you know, this this didn't hit me as hard as it would upon subsequent readings. So it's one that I've mm-hmm. always liked, I was appreciated, but it, it wasn't until I read it in adulthood where I, I really appreciated what it was doing and what it had to say about the character. But yeah, I think I read that first trade in the late 90s, I want to say. What about you? See, I didn't, it was one of those that, because like I've talked before how my comic book reading was so rocky because, you know, libraries didn't always have it and there was no stores by, we just had a couple of spinner racks, a couple of locations and it wasn't until later um, that like, I was able to start getting books and buying. And it was what I wanted. I want to say it was like, I don't think Janine and I were married yet. So, but maybe we just got married. I want to say it was around 2011, 2011. I just remember I was getting a bunch from the library because they were keeping trades. And I just remember sitting at my in-laws and they live out in the country and I was sitting by the window, beautiful sunlight, chick uh, kicked back in this chair, and I just remember reading the first. And much like you, like I got a good bit out of it and appreciated it. But since su- subsequent, as I continue to continue to read it, um, I get more each time, and the older I get, the more I uh, get from it. But what I was getting at is, I think because of our love for Smallville. And growing up, like watching that show in our formative years, I think anything set with a young Clark in Smallville with his parents resonates heavy on us. 
Oh, a thousand percent. And Al Goff and Miles Miller, the creators and uh, executive producers of Smallville, they have a blurb uh, on the cover of the trade and they have cited this as one of their inspirations. So that's a whole other component to this where if not for this, do we even get Smallville or do we get Smallville in the form that we did? I don't know. So it's just yet another reason to be <laughs> eternally grateful to Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale for this miniseries. Since I know you said you get more out of it each time, I, I agree with that. Have you? Do you find that you're you discover new things about it each time you read it? And, and I guess in particular, was there anything with this read that not that you didn't notice it before, but maybe it didn't stick out to you as much, or you read it in a different way, or anything along those lines? I, I think some of the art, and as we kind of go through it, because this was the first time I read it through the app. You know, usually I, I pull out my book and I like my book, but like just sitting there in the car and having read the story you can take a moment to just kind of appreciate some of the art more. And just, you know, when you're on the app, it's panel by panel if you choose. So just kind of, you know, really looking at the subtlety of some of the art, but at the same time, the detail of in the background and just appreciate, I think appreciating the color and stuff more um, and little things um, each time. It's just taking, it's like when I watch a movie and you've seen the movie a, a, a lot and then just starting to watch the background actors compared to watching, you know, the main actors just to kind of see what other level. And just, I, I think also just paying more attention to parallels and in the, in the months, like, you know, the Clark in his room um, and then Clark in his apartment panel. Right. And like how like cluttered the room in the house was yeah. versus the apartment in the city, which is not necessarily neat per se, but a bit more sparse than it was in, in Smallville. And obviously the coloring is very different. So it's that cooler blue. It doesn't have the warmth of the room in Smallville. And that ties in with the loneliness. That's the thing. This, uh, such a fan of Tim Sale, such a loss that he's gone. And, and like yourself, you mentioned the detail. That was the thing that as I was reading this, I was really zeroing in on just the amount of, of texture and nuance that's there in the art. When you look at the porch of the Kent farm and you see the boots, like one of them is knocked over and you see the blanket that's kind of like thrown over the, the swing on the porch. Just little, little things like that that add so much texture. And I think the juxtaposition of that versus the restraint shown in some of the scenes is really a fascinating blend because we were talking about uh, that scene when, when my son walked in where Clark and Jonathan are out in the field. You don't see their conversation you do get Jonathan's narration and he relays some of, at least some of what was said in that conversation, but we're not actually hearing that. We're seeing Martha watch the two most important people in, in her life have this moment. And similarly, in the moment right before Clark leaves Smallville, that stunningly gorgeous double page vista of the sunset and Clark and Jonathan out in the field, it's just a brief moment between the two of them. You don't see the heartfelt goodbye and the parting words. That's for you to fill in. And so there are moments like that where I think there's so much restraint shown and that coupled with, like I said, that amount of, of detail and just the nuance and the art, it creates such a, like I said, a beautiful blend and and so much nuance. It's, it's really, uh, I mean, the two of them, it goes without saying, we're a, a magnificent team. I was gonna save this for the end, but let me ask you now. Certainly the two of them did a ton on the Batman character. Over at Marvel, they had their whole line of the color books, Spider-Man Blue, Hulk Gray, Daredevil Yellow, Captain America White. And what I wanted to ask you is, did you have you ever thought about 
what it would have been like if they had done the For All Seasons treatment for other DC characters. If For All Seasons had become a line of books, a la the color books at Marvel. Mm -hmm. and, and which character or characters in particular would you have most wanted to see them apply the For All Seasons treatment to? Flash. Yeah, that was top of my yeah. list too. Flash, Flash and or Green Lantern, you know? I, I will say Superman or Super, Spider-Man Blue is amazing. It's my favorite Spider-Man story. It I because I always well side tangent here, people, okay? But I always love the idea. And I think this comes also from his personal experience in life that Peter, he loved Gwen, and then he met Mary Jane and cultivated a friendship. And then when Gwen was gone, that friendship was then elevated and became something more. And that, but they started that foundation as this friendship. And because I love the line in that book where Mary Jane says to him, tell her I miss her too. Yep. You know, and that was one thing I think that was great about Spectacular Spider-Man, the TV show, was because it had both those characters operating in it in some function. So there's our little Spider-Man tangent. Um, and Gwen and Mary Jane make a little cameo in that Sam Loeb story or the Sam story uh, from that uh, Superman cool. Batman issue. They're there outside like Smallville High yep. uh, for a second. So they threw them in there, which was a nice, a nice nod. But I'm, I'm, most people are like, oh, the all season treatment for Batman. Well, they did no. so much with Batman. I, I know. And that's my thing is like, they did enough with Batman. But I think, I think the Flash... Especially like if it was before Jeff Johns, you know, before we kill off the mom and that, and it's, and having that type of story with, with, with Barry, because of course it's going to be Barry, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think would be amazing. I would be curious what they would do with Wonder Woman. That's like, another good you know, one. Because showing her on the island and the type of relationship she had with people on the island and growing up and then how they could depict her as that only child that's the only child, you know, and then grows to a woman and then her coming, you know, there's, there's a, I think there's a similar pattern that can be established there. So I, those would be my two wonder woman and flash. I I'm with you again. I would, I would throw green lantern into, into the mix, but I, I agree with your picks. If anyone out there has in any information, there was nothing that I came across. Cause I guess I'm curious, is this something that the two of them as a creative team ever expressed any interest in and DC just didn't bite? Or was this something that, Maybe DC wanted, but they didn't have the interest in, in doing this with other characters. If, if anyone has any information, uh, please reach out. I'd be very curious about that. But going back to the question I asked you about kind of picking up on new things each time, I have a couple of examples. So there's a moment between Martha and Clark before Clark leaves Smallville. And obviously I've read it every time I've read For All Seasons, but I think I'm always so focused on that like I said, that that stunning scene between Clark and Jonathan out in the field that I kind of overlook the moment on the porch between Martha and Clark. But the thing, one of the things she says to him is that you can do anything you set your mind to as long as you believe in it with all your heart. And I just thought that was such a great line and such a great moment. One other thing, and this is very minor, and I'm probably reading way too much into this, but I've read this so many times now that you know <laughs> you just keep digging deeper and deeper. One of my favorite parts of issue number one is when post-tornado, Clark goes to speak with his pastor. And I like mm. this for two reasons. One, I understand why stories typically tread very lightly when it comes to Clark and the Kents and religion, but it's something that, even though, again, I am not a religious person, but I 
would imagine that would be part of their life and their routine in Kansas. And so I do like to see it acknowledged. And so the notion that he would go to speak with this person rings true. So I thought that was a nice bit to include. But more specifically, Clark's whole question, and of course the pastor doesn't know where he's going with this. How could he? But Clark's whole thing, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially is capturing this idea of, you know, I've been taught to think that there are certain things beyond our control. And the pastor even says in that conversation, when the Almighty sets his mind to something, there's nothing anyone can do. And Clark's response is, well, but what if someone could? And it's fascinating to me because you have to imagine if you are brought up in, in, the, in any faith, or even if you're not brought up in a faith, but still there, there has to probably be some notion, right? Some idea that at some point you have to relinquish control. There are certain things beyond your control. But for Clark, as his powers have continued to develop and emerge, he actually has the power to exert some control over forces like a tornado. So the way that that must challenge your belief structure is really kind of interesting. And I love that that was acknowledged. And the, the bit that, again, maybe I'm reading too much into, but that stood out to me. Flash forward to issue number four, after the flood, and Pastor Linquist is addressing the citizens of Smallville. And he says, and the ellipses here is, is, is very key. He says, we're very dot, dot, dot lucky that Superman was here. And as I read that, I said to myself, the story wasn't built for this. It's not Pastor Linquist's story. But you have to imagine, Pastor Linquist must have had his own journey after the emergence of the Superman, right? Because just as Clark's own belief structure had to jump through some hoops to reconcile what he can do uh, with what he's been raised to think, I would imagine it would be a similar sort of thing for the pastor or for any any clergy person. So it was, I just, I love that little moment. And I couldn't help but that dot, 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 lucky was alluding to to the pastor's own journey coming to terms with Superman's role in the world. I think, you know, going back to what you said earlier, I think a short story written from his point of view would have been really good. Yeah. But like you said, of him to like wrestling with the idea. And then like, I, there's little things in here, like you talked about the tornado and he saves... Um, the one character, hold on, I'm going to it right now. Um, yeah, the one who works <clears> at the gas station. Yeah. And there's little things in there. I kind of wonder if like there are people at Smallville who figure it out. Well, but so, just because yeah. they are Smallville, it's like family and they're like, they're not saying anything. Dude, I know what like, you're they, talking about because he has that 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 gentleman, I forget his exact name, but he's one of the quartet, right? So we do spend some time on Main Street on Smallville and at the general store. And there's that quartet of guys who are perpetually playing this game of cards. And one of them works at the gas station and Clark saves him during the twister. And he starts to say when he comes to like, oh, like you flew in here. Oh, oh, that's ridiculous. The tornado threw you around like a rag doll. So he's come up with his own rationalization for how Clark could have possibly saved him. But then the panel at the bottom of the page, there's a look he gives Clark. The way he's looking at Clark speaks to exactly what you're saying of Oh no, does he actually know what happened? And he's and and I and I've always kind of found it interesting that whole track that it's kind of an open secret in Smallville that with all of this weird stuff going on, at least some people would know, but they they protect him. He's one of their own. You talk about this community and the small town. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. And I don't I, I like the way it's played here where it's nothing explicit and you can read it either way. 
Uh, it was hard to get a read though, because from his words, it really seems like he's rationalized, that he's come up with his own explanation. But then that look that he gives Clark really speaks to something else, it seems. I mean, even the way that uh, Tim Sales drew him later during winter when Clark comes in and they're sitting there and one of them is uh, Mr. Morris is gone and he kind of looks at Clark with certain eyes. It kind of plays back into that same thing where I think like, you know, you get saved from a tornado by a guy, then not too long Superman shows up. You start to put some pieces together. Yeah. Um, I, I but think, you know, yeah, no, go ahead. No, but to them, it's always, it's Clark, you know, like it's just, exactly. knew, and, I, and who is it? Is it Lana? Yeah. It's Lana who later says, and when people question the Superman and his motives and who he is and everything, uh, actually, I'm going to go pull the page up right here. Um, I finally, I think it's right here. I finally realized while, while I was away, how special it made me feel because to understand the man in the cape who could fly, all you needed to know was Clark. Yep. And I think that's, that's the secret is all these people like who question Superman, all this. It's like, but once you know that it's Clark, and you know who he is, you're like, you understand Superman. No, exactly. I, I want to circle back to that moment because I think that it's so profound and it, it encapsulates so much of all of this. But just big picture, a, a couple of other things I wanted to say about the strength of Four All Seasons is that this came out in 98 when John Byrne's Man of Steel was the official incontinuity origin of the character. So this was before Birthright and before Secret Origin which would make their their own tweaks. And what I think is brilliant about For All Seasons is that if you read it in the late 90s, or even if you read it now in the context of Burns' Man of Steel, it fits. It lines mm -hmm. up with what's established there. So the Clark we meet in the spring of his senior year in issue number one is a Clark who has seen the rocket. He's had that moment out in the field with Jonathan. He knows he's from somewhere else. He thinks he might be Russian. He's not quite mm -hmm. sure of his, of his origins yet. When we get to the the big Lex Luthor issue, number three, that picks up with Lex having been arrested, which of course happens in the pages of Burns Man of Steel. So if you read them together, they complement each other. But to this book's strength, if you read it in a vacuum, which is the way you and I are reading it now, and, and the way mm -hmm. I imagine, this is one of those evergreen books, right? I would imagine virtually every comic shop out there has a copy of this or... If they don't have it, it's because they just sold it and they're waiting for another one to get in. Yeah. So I would imagine there are a lot of people who are reading this who are reading it in a vacuum, not with within the context of Burns Man of Steel. And it reads perfectly on its yeah. own, right? Again, it's not hitting those tentpole moments of the origin, but it's it's telling a different and arguably more interesting story because it's filling in those pieces in between. As, as awesome as those iconic uh, you know, uh, moments are, uh, to kind of be able to 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 build out what's going on before and after and show the character in between those big moments, uh, it adds so much to the story. So I, that's one of the things about it that I think is really interesting, that you can read it with or without Man of Steel, and it it works either way. I, I, prefer, I prefer to read it without, just because I feel like there's something simplistic about this, but yet layered, if that makes any sense. And something that I love about this story is I like its smallness. Like we we don't get into the Krypton of it. We don't have him being rocketed to Earth. We don't have Kryptonite. We don't have like, you know, one of my biggest problems, or not, I don't want to say problems, but 
one thing that kind of gets played out, and you and I talked about this a little bit in our uh, Justice League Year One, is you start with these characters and then you build them by the final issue. It's some big alien invasion. And that's the climax. You know, we're f- And the same thing happens in Birthright. You know, it builds up to what is perceived as an alien invasion. And this, it's not. It's a personal, emotional journey. And it's small. Yep. You know, um, and you don't get into... For most of it, you don't get into the sci-fi aspect of the character. And I think that's why I come back to this book. And I like it is because you can look at it, he's an alien, or he's just a man who can do some things and wrestles with what he's able to do without really knowing who he is. We reference the television series Smallville a lot around here, and there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always hold on to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. The shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Many of you have already used this code, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Now, I thought about that a lot, too, the the utter absence of anything to do with Krypton, right, which is a very specific choice. And I think what makes this resonate so much and why I think the Smallville television series that it at least partially inspired was so successful, even though, of course, the television show delved heavily into, (laughs) into the Kryptonian side of things. But at their core, I think they're similar in that they tap into the most human, universal, relatable themes that people can sink their teeth into with or without the trappings of the superhero story. So specifically, when you're looking at the Pa Kent issue, number one, these are parents who know that it's time to send their son off into the world. They know that for as much guidance as they've been able to offer, there are questions they can't answer. And yes, that's heightened in this specific context when they're dealing with uh, a child with the abilities that Clark has, but still that same kind of idea that they need to let him go and find his own path and find those own answers for himself. And, and again, so much of that was present in the Smallville TV show. The fact that just like in the, in the modern comics, right? He doesn't have all of his powers from childhood, but rather they're emerging as he's moving through adolescence, not unlike puberty. So you have all of these episodes of the Smallville TV show where these powers are manifesting and they're, for example, the heat vision episode, right? Tied to his hormones when he's feeling excited, Classic. all of a sudden the heat vision comes out. 
And Who hasn't what, felt like you got heat vision when you're sitting there? <laughs> and that's the thing, even though, yes, the specific context is not something, or the, the specific manifestation of it is not something that uh, we can relate to, but the kind of the, the feelings at play certainly are. So I, I think that's kind of the strength of, of both of those stories is being able to tap into that. One thing that I really do want to highlight in For All Seasons, because this is something that even Smallville, despite having 10 years and, and over 200 episodes, I don't think really ever made much of an effort to do, which was to give the town itself a more distinct identity and to populate mm. it with people who show up throughout mm -hmm. the story. For All Seasons does that beautifully, specifically with that quartet of guys playing that card game uh, in the general store. Eddie, who runs the general store, uh, the pastor, right, pops up a few times, Chief Parker. Um, and it's a little bit of that goes a long way. Like one of the things with the Smallville TV show that always drove me kind of nuts was you get to the commencement episode at the end of season four, and then you get to the high school reunion episode in season 10 in the 200th episode. And in both instances, it would have been really cool if there were some background actors or bit players who were there for multiple episodes who then could come together in those milestone events and it's like, oh, it really has this feel of like, oh, we've been with these people all along, but you don't, mm -hmm. you just don't have that. So, so I really like TV that. show is the biggest small town there is <laughs> because they talk about it like it is so small. And then like I lived in a small, like I live in a smaller town now. Like I live in a, what's con actually considered a village. Um, but when I lived in the small town and the population, like, I, you know, was less than what the uh, Smallville population is and the way they perceive Smallville in the show. I'm like, I don't think the writers understood what a small town was, you know, and how that works. Um, because when you think small town, you think of like the way it's depicted in like a Hallmark movie where there's like one church and everybody goes to it. Everybody knows everybody. And they try to give that off in Smallville, but there's always somebody pick, popping up that you've never seen or heard of before. Absolutely. I want to say there's one more moment that, again, I had read before, but it never really jumped out at me the way it did here, where early on in the story where Jonathan's encountered this rock out in the field and Clark comes over and very easily lifts it. And it, you know, it's a, somewhat of a tense moment between the two of them, because clearly this is a point in time where Clark's powers have, have really continued to grow. And we see later instances where he uses his x-ray vision inadvertently when he's about to get his hair cut and he sees Pete and Lana uh, in the general store and then he can't even get his hair cut because the scissors break. So, you know, this all kind of ties into this idea that things are kind of getting beyond their their knowledge, their control at this point. None of them know the upper limits of the abilities that he has or new abilities that he might manifest. There's so many question marks. But in that scene out in the field with The Rock... Jonathan, in his narration, says something along the lines of like, you know, what kind of fools would put a baby in a rocket? But then he says it takes an entirely different kind of thinking to actually keep that child and raise him as your own. And I just love that. I, I've used this metaphor multiple times before on the show, but I believe it to my very core that Jor-El and Laura make the most incredible, impossible Hail Mary pass ever across the stars and fueled just by their love for their son and their faith that someone will find him and protect him and love him more than anything. And Jonathan and Martha 
against all odds make the most impossible catch that's mm -hmm. ever been made and fulfill that faith that Jorel and Lara sent that rocket out with. They find this baby, they take him in and they love him. Like that's all they can do. Like they don't have any of the answers. They don't have much in the way of resources. Like all they have is their love for this child, but the love that launched the rocket and the love that let the Kents take him in that makes Superman. That makes mm. Superman. Without that, mm. you don't. So, it's it's I love it so much, and just that little moment of Jonathan, you know, kind of in one breath taking you know taking Jor El and Lara to task, right? Even though he doesn't even know who they are, but then in the same breath, recognizing uh, how insane it was for for Jonathan and Martha to do what they did. Uh, so that's just one of those little moments that. Again, I was just kind of more dialed into this time, and, and I really appreciated it. You know, in, the, in that same panel, is like with Jonathan, is like he, you know, he's a little bit more like trying to figure things out and just kind of overwhelmed, you know, and not sure what he's doing. But I love the line that says, But that's Martha for you, stubborn as a mule, twice set in her ways, wonderful woman. Marry her all over again tomorrow if that's what she wanted. <laughs> like, I know. just how much he relies on her. And I think there's a, this is where it goes to Tim Sale right here. Um, the scene where Clark picks up the rock, you know, and he has it. And then bottom panel where Jonathan almost looks upset at Clark and he, and Clark's just like, paw. And then Jonathan's walking away like, your mother wants us for supper. Best not keep her waiting. Almost as if he hadn't come to terms with Clark's powers, abilities, or whatever. Like, and he's older, you know. Um, it just, it's just interesting to me. You know, it's like he's still trying to keep, I guess it's one way of looking at he's still trying to keep, not keep Clark down, but keep him on the farm in his way of thinking, you know, that he, Jonathan's not ready to embrace and let Clark go and be himself. Like, he's still trying to keep him. I hate saying like in his place, but he's not really doing that. It's just, yeah, because he says you're going to need something for leverage, son. He's like, you know, using the tool and Clark just picks it up. And it's like, he's not ready for Clark to be his own man, embrace who he is. And it's, it's small and it's subtle, but I think you pick up more than that. Like we said, the older you get and the more you read it and kind of understand where the parents are coming from compared to just Clark's point of view. Totally. I think, I think there are a couple of things at play there. I think that you see this or you hear it in that scene when Clark goes to Jonathan after the scissors break at the barbers and he's like, pa, I'm scared. And the two of them have their, mo their moment that we, we see Martha observe. And what we get via Jonathan's narration is he says something along the lines of, you know, I, I wish I could tell him that all the answers lie here in Smallville. But all I can tell him is that his mother and I will always love him. And so I think at least one of the things that's going on here is, again, this recognition that there are answers they can't provide. There are forces at play that are beyond them. And this might be the last Smallville TV, probably won't be the last Smallville reference, but it's the last one that I at least have on, on the brain. And it's a moment I've quoted a lot, but it's from the series finale where you have that moment in the barn between Clark and the spirit of Jonathan where Clark's going up against Darkseid. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know if he could beat him. He's asking Jonathan for help. And Jonathan's like, as much as we've tried to protect you and shield you from your Kryptonian origins, I'm afraid this 
it goes beyond the guidance that I can provide. You have to turn to Jor-El. And I, I just, that, that was in my head as I was, as I was reading this, just this acknowledgement. And, and this is where I say it taps into some universal themes. Cause even though likely what we as parents won't have to deal with that specifically, yeah. you know, there will come a point where there, there will be answers that we can provide. And, and the best thing that we can do is to say, Hey, we're here for you. We love you. We always have your back. This is something you need to do. You need to find the answers for. Um, so I think that's a part of it. I do think there's also a little bit more specifically, I think there's also this little bit of a sentiment here, not that they're afraid of Clark or what Clark will do, but I think this, you kind of get some, some insight in that conversation that Jonathan and Martha have at night that Clark overhears with his super hearing. And Jonathan says something to the effect of, you know, Clark's, since we had that conversation, right? Alluding to that conversation from Man of Steel where he shows him the rocket. It's like, you know, since we've had that conversation, Clark's really been taking it in stride, like maybe too well, right? And so maybe that's kind of what's at play when he sees Clark lift up that rock in the field. Not that Clark's flaunting the powers, but I think there is this kind of this open question for Jonathan and Martha, at least to some extent of, did we raise him right? And ultimately, I, I, I know in their hearts, they do think that, but I think that's at least some kind of question and kind of a natural question when you're dealing with someone with that level of, of power. But, but I mean, even then as parents, do we not question that even with like the age of your son, the age of my kids, like I'll reflect sometimes like, am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Am I raising them right? Am I, you know, you kind of think back on yourself as a parent of like, what am I doing? Cause you know, the, the secret to parent and fatherhood that kids don't realize is we don't have all the answers. We don't always know what we're doing. You know, they look to us back to, you know, one of my favorite recent comics that you had talked about with, um, Philip Kennedy Johnson, The Golden Years, Golden Age, and everything. That book hit me hard. And I loved that book. And I loved hearing you and him talk about it and where he comes from in it because that's right where we're at. It's like, we don't always know what we're doing as parents and as dads. We're doing the best that we can and we reflect on that ourselves. And I think that's kind of like what Jonathan here is. You know, he's talking with Martha, he's expressing his fears and stuff. And um. So yeah, absolutely. I you know, I want to move us into the the other seasons. I, I, the last couple things yeah. I want to say. Yeah, we're just hanging out in spring. That's well, our favorite. I, I, yeah, I don't think that's that's that will shock the audience. <laughs> but I, I love that there's this force of nature, this natural event, the tornado that Clark has to contend with. And as Jonathan says, he believes that's the moment Clark became a man, uh, and he uses his power to save. Uh, who he's able to, but it leaves him with this feeling of, I could have done more. And this ties in with that prom night story, which is a, a, mm -hmm. a really great, like I said, just the short story from the issue of Solo that Tim Sale did and written by Jeff Loeb and Clark's on his way to pick up Lana for the prom. And along the way, he meets this, he encounters this citizen of Smallville who, uh, not necessarily the friendliest, right? <laughs> Even Martha's mm -hmm. like, you know, she never has anything nice to say or anything nice said about her. And she, her car is stuck. And Clark, despite having saved up to rent this tuxedo to take Lana to the prom, presses it up against uh, the car to lift the car to get her out. And all she does is hits the gas, splatters him with mud and races off. But there were two things that Martha said in that that really stood out. Unfortunately for Clark, he's able to go up into the clouds and get a little bit of rainwater and super spin and, and clean himself up in time to make it to the dance. But as Clark is driving off, Martha says, you know, at this point in time, he hadn't yet put together how to use his powers. Right. So again, I think that's important at this point in time, there's this desire to help, this feeling that he can do things that other people can't do. And he 
wants to be a force for good, but the idea of adopting a dual persona and becoming a public facing superhero, yeah. like, none of that has come together yet. So that's the, that's the Clark we're meeting at this point. But then she also says, and I have quoted this a lot, and I think this is one of those keys to the character, as I like to say, where when Clark is standing there after this nasty woman has, has, has driven off there and he's covered in the mud and he's like, and Martha says, you know, I honestly think Clark stopped and helped her because he assumes that's what anyone else in his position would do. And to this day, I think that's how he sees humanity, right? He does what he does. And this came up in that Philip Kennedy Johnson conversation mm -hmm. and, and, and in his work, this idea of like Clark does what he does because he, whether he outright believes or maybe hopes is the better word, right? He hopes that's what other people would do if they were in his position. Uh, and I think it's, again, great insight into who this guy is and why he does what he does. I mean, yeah, he, he just helps because like, that's what other people would do. And it's kind of that same thing of like putting good out there, getting good in return or being the change you want to see in the world. And just, <laughs> it's amazing how many times you can, little things you do for people and help and people are surprised and shocked by it. Yes. Like, oh, because they don't believe people actually would do good and would help. Absolutely. And you're just like, and that goes back to, like I said, the who Clark is. But I think spring, I don't know which one is my favorite, maybe spring. Uh, I don't know, but I, I just love the foundation building that spring does to, you know, push us forward into the story. And, you know, the other, before we leave spring, the, I think the biggest thing we need to touch on is, um, Lana, you know, we still got, well, yeah, the Lana it part is where, you know, he, he, because, I think something that you don't think about in a lot of times is, you know, he he reveals to Lana, he tells her a secret. And I love the way he does it because I always joked with my wife, if I was a superhero, I had to tell you, like, I'd like make sure you knew. Like, you know, if I was Superman, like, I had to tell you, like, I would slowly lift you and fly you up. Cause then, you know, in so many of these shows or movies, they're like, I'm this. And they're like, no, you're not. Prove it or whatever. And, it's like, and he takes her hands and just, you know, they fly up into the air and he's telling her and he's trying to explain to her the best that he can. And it's like, he's expressing something he's sharing with her, but I don't think at this point he realizes what that does to her. No. And I, I agree with you. And I think that's such, such a, a great moment and just kind of the use of perspective here, because the way it plays she very quickly seems to acknowledge and seems to accept you, you need to go, right? Like you need to leave Smallville. When you get that final issue from her perspective, you come to understand how shattered she was in that moment, how she thought he was taking her out to propose, right? So this yeah. just completely upended her entire world and everything she had planned for her future. And he, you know, it's, it's lost on him. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, but he, he doesn't quite connect with, with her just knowing how that ch changes her ideas of the world. And even not down to the fact, like you just said, like the points where she points out, like she thought they were going to get married and do all this and be together. It just, you know, shatters her total existence. And, and then of course the book, um, you know, towards the end of the book is when he makes his way to the Daily Planet and 
we have the, the like we said the line where it says time passes. Yeah, so we know that he's time had his shifts. journey around the world, right? And now he's now he's there. Mm-hmm. I never cared for Metropolis much. Can't see the horizon unless you're flying over it. Maybe that's why Clark chose to settle there after all. And of course, he meets, or at least he encounters for the first time, the young boy whose name will come to learn is Trevor at the end of the story. And of course, Trevor says, you know, Clark catches him and Trevor says, cool costume. And we get the iconic, now iconic line, thanks, my mom made it for me, which of course was brought to life on screen by Tyler Hecklin in the pilot of Superman and Lois. And it is such a cool moment. The, and this truly, this really is kind of the last piece that I want to say about the, the spring issue is that with Jonathan in particular, I feel like a lot of times we as Superman fans, and I include myself in this, I'm, I know I'm guilty of this too, I think we kind of look at Jonathan and kind of assume that he's making all of these speeches to Clark about the hero that he's going to be. But I think when you really look at Jonathan in the stories that we've gotten, and Smallville is a good example of this, it's often about, yes, there are there are some moral lessons in there, but it's most of it is about keeping your power secret, right? And not, not being exposed. And that's why when I go back to this idea of restraint, I like that this book wasn't about Pa making all these speeches to Clark. It's just about these small, quiet moments, the ones that we even get to see, because so much of it is just kind of in the background, we're kind of filling in the blanks ourselves. And really, it's just about this expression of love. That's why, of course, I do have one more Smallville thing. Uh, in, in Smallville, when after Jonathan passes in season five, there's that episode later in the season, it was their uh, takeoff on the Flatliners movie where uh, you know Clark mm-hmm. is in the afterlife as the episode Void. Uh, he's in the afterlife and he encounters the, the spirit of Jonathan. And as much as you might, you might kind of chalk it up to, oh, it's just a vision that he's having. Jonathan actually imparts a specific knowledge that Clark couldn't have had. So it, <laughs> it seems to be the actual spirit of Jonathan. But it's like in that moment, that's when Jonathan gives him this whole speech about you're going to be, a, you're going to touch the lives of so many people. You're a symbol of, of truth, of justice, of hope. It's like, where was this when you were alive? <laughs> I guess he gained new perspective in the afterlife. But the Jonathan on the show, like that would have felt very out of character if all of us, he says, you got to keep your mother safe. You got to keep the whole world safe. It's a far cry from what we had gotten mm. along the way. It also makes you wonder if like the things that we think in our mind, but then the things that we actually say and like relative to our kids, like, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to put this weight on him. Maybe I'll just save it till he's a little older. You know, I'm watching him grow up. You know, and he's not there yet. But I want to tell him this one day. And then, if this is, and we'll take it as the spirit of Jonathan, it's like this is his chance to say all the stuff that he's thought, but he didn't know if Clark was ready to hear. Because this might be the only time he has a chance to actually tell him. And he's like this, you know, kind of like letting it out, like, "This is what I've always thought about you. This is what I've always seen for you." And I think, you know, I just think about that as a parent, like, you know, the things that you think of for your kids that maybe you don't say just yet. I think that's a fair way of looking at it. The other thing, and jumping ahead to issue four, when Clark's really questioning himself after what he's experienced in Metropolis brought about by Lex, which we'll talk about, but he's once again in his childhood room lying down and he says to Pa, he's like, I thought I could do anything. And I, I, you know, I don't know if, if, if I'm on the right track. And Jonathan tells this story. And this, this to me is a quintessential Jonathan Kent. When we think about what is actually said between the two of them, I feel like this is a great representation of it where Jonathan tells a story about how the first year, right, that he was, that he was a farmer, he had this amazing crop of corn. He was the talk of the town. And then the next year or two, 
uh, things didn't go well for him and he really doubted himself. And he's like, but I got through it. And I like to think that over time I became a, a pretty damn good farmer. And then the next panel, he says, over time, son. And I honestly, man, like that's one of those lines I think about a lot. And I feel like the, the role that time plays, uh, this, you know, comes up in the Rocky movies too. I know I'm really going off on a tangent here, but bear with me when, uh, in the, Oh no, you, you, I got something to tell you. You'll appreciate that. So what I got to say in the, in the thing, in the Creed movie as well, when, uh, Rocky meets uh, Adonis, Apollo's son for the first time. And, and, and Donnie asks Rocky, like, how'd you beat Apollo? Cause Rocky says like Apollo is the greatest, no one better. And Apollo and Adonis is like, well, how'd you beat him? And he goes, it's time. Like it's undefeated. It catches up with all of us. And that's the thing. Time heals, right? Time can smooth a lot over. Time catches up with everyone. Time gives you the benefit of experience. So like it, it, I don't know. I think about that a lot. Just this idea of over, over time, son. Cause I know a lot of times we just want, whether it's want a, it a goal or whatever it is, like we just want it now. We want to get to where we want to be. And you really do have to trust whether it's, again, a project, exercise, like whatever it is, you really have to, the role of time is so critical to all of this. You just gotta, you gotta show up, you gotta do the work day in and day out. And over time, you will see the results of that, but you have to be patient and you have to trust in it. But that, just that panel of him looking at Clark, he's like, over time, son. I love it. What did you have about Rocky? Oh, I, I, I thought of that. So the other day, Solomon had a really rough day at school and I'm gonna shorten this. And we were talking, he was talking about just things happening and the way kids were behaving and how life, he's like, and I, and I started slowly going into the speech from Rocky Six about, you know, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit. And like life's going to hit you the hardest and you're going to get back up. And like I started doing that whole like speech doing and I was like, and I'm just like, I'm not, so because I'm driving, right? So I'm talking to him over the phone and I'm telling him this. I'm like, buddy, like that's how life is going to be. You got to be able to take this. And, you know, and I was just like, ah, thanks, Rock. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like that's such a great speech, and I was just like, life in all like, sunshine and rainbows. It is like, a very mean and nasty that. place, and it will beat you to the ground and keep you there permanently if you let it. All right, I could do the whole thing, but I won't. But I'm with like, you. That's that movie is almost 20 years old. It's, it's it's actually my favorite Rocky movie. It's my favorite Rocky movie as well. I feel like that's often considered like a hot take, but no, it's my favorite movie. It spoke to me in a weird way because I was a I was like a sophomore in college when it came out, a young man at this point. But the idea of this older guy who has this chance to to express something the way that he knows how and get out that beast in the basement, it just, it resonated with me, and I I love it to death. Yep, I was. You know, when that movie came out, I was dealing with stuff with my band, and I won't go down that whole thing, but there was connections that were made, you know, there. But it's it's fantastic. So Yeah, it's my favorite. We move into summer, the Lois-centric installment. And like you said, and we get this at the end of the first issue, time has passed, right? So Clark's had his journey around the world. He's adopted the Superman persona. He's working at the Daily Planet as a reporter. And this episode, this episode, this issue... Uh, shows us events from Lois's pers perspective, which I think in, in a lot of ways represents kind of the person on the street, metropolis view on the Superman operating in their hometown. Uh, Superman stops a missile. He tracks it to these uh, underwater terrorists in a submarine, notices that the missile and the guidance system were manufactured by LexCorp. He has this moment with Lex where he talks to Lex in a way that no one else does as Lois 
points out to him and also shows Lex up when one of the terrorists takes Lois hostage. And of course, Lex steps forward. Well, I can negotiate with anyone. And in the time it takes him to get the sentence out, Superman, of course, has used his super speed and has disarmed this guy. And even then, Lex is like, well, I can give you a ride back to the Daily Planet, Lois. And uh, instead, Lois flies her there. Uh, and then, of course, Clark has a visit back to Smallville, which I want to talk about. And then the, the issue culminates in Clark rescuing uh, this this young woman, this chemist from a fire. And of course, she'll come into play uh, in the subsequent issue with Lex's plan. Um, in this issue, Lois expresses something that you were, you were getting at earlier. You gave us Lana's answer to this question. The question, and Lois you know, expressly articulates this. She says, speaking of Superman, he can do anything he wants to and he decides to do what? Be a hero? Why? <laughs> and again, I think this is one of the central questions and Lana's answer, which you gave us before, this is like one of the keys to understanding Superman because it's like, why would anyone with the powers of a God, and you could say this of any superhero, but Superman is the first, the greatest, the strongest, the most powerful, the the, the most potential of being corrupted, right? If, if absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And yet he chooses to help people. And I, it's a fair question. And you think about in our world, I was thinking about this. It's like, we don't have superheroes. What, what do we have? We have athletes, actors, politicians. I don't know that there's a single one I could point to, especially at the very top of the game mm -hmm. where I think, oh, like they're just doing this you know, out of the goodness of their heart. Like there's always, you always yeah. assume there's some ulterior motive, whether it's nefarious or just self-interest or what. So the, like they're, they're getting no, paid. Well, the that day, too, like, well, that too. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, and like you said, are they doing this because like, would they do this if they, if there wasn't money involved, would they be out to it? Like you hear about like, um, celebrities and, you know, stuff, doing stuff with their money. Like, okay, cool. And I'm glad you are, you know, like you have more money than I do. And I would love to be able to do something like that. So it's awesome that you're actually doing something with it. But I, it's sad that we have these stories of inspiration and what we want, but yet we we don't see it on the grand scale. Yeah. There isn't someone we can point to that's everyone knows or whatever. Cause and that's why I think people have a trouble believing in someone doing stuff just because it's the right thing or it's because it's good or whatever, is because you always think people are out for themselves. Look, we all love The Rock, right? Probably the most popular, well-known celebrity on a global scale. And I, 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 I've come to terms with even if whatever, whatever is going on beneath the surface, I think a lot of the the messages that he espouses, there's value to be gleaned from them. But I see his Instagram videos when you know he pulls up next to the Star Tours bus. And he's in his truck and he rolls down the window and he's like, hey, man, everyone goes, everyone goes nuts. They're so excited. And I'm like, oh, like, that's cool. Like he's brightening up their day. But it's like, what? Well, he's also filming it and putting it on Instagram or exactly. all the Make-A-Wish stuff that he does, which is beautiful. And he's he's making a lot of people in a very tough position happy, you know, to the extent that he can. Yet again, it's being it's being filmed and produced and 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 put up there, and you can argue that that's for any number of of specific reasons. But yeah, sometimes it's hard to say. Okay, well, but what are you doing when nobody's watching, mm -hmm. right? And that's Superman, right? He does what he does, no matter who's watching. There's a line in the third issue from Lex that I thought was so telling, and there were more to say about Lex. But after Lex has unleashed this virus right across the city, and everyone's everyone's uh, incapacitated, and Lex says. Uh, of Superman, how there's no one left to say thank you to him or to cheer his good intentions. And it's like, buddy, you don't get him at all, right? The, the, it's, he, that's why I think at times 
the idea that Lex can't figure out the Superman's Clark Kent because he can't fathom that works because this is Lex filtering Superman through his point of understanding of who this character is or could be um, and what he must want. Like all the, you know, I think that's what's great about like with Superman in the sense is he's Superman. Yeah, they can cheer, but then he can go be Clark and he's not standing there like, look at me. Right. He can walk among everybody just as someone normal and not be getting the praise or like having people draw attention to him. So I know we love this mini series. Um, let me ask you though, is out of these four, is there any one that maybe doesn't, doesn't pop for you as much as the others? Or I know we, we have a very special place for issue number one, but of the remaining ones, I think the term pop is funny because I think three stands out because it's the biggest one and it's the most uh, comic booky with what Luther does. Right. And it's the Luther and it's the fall issue. And it's probably my least favorite hmm. um, because, I mean, you have to have three to get to four, right? But I like all the smallness, the subtleness of the character inspiration, uh, introspection because, like I said, so, so many of the stories that I, we read in comics, especially all build up to be these giant battles against the aliens at the end. And this is about a person's emotional journey through life, reconciling who they are, what they can do and where they fit in the world. And I think, and, you know, reading one, and I think four resonates a lot more. And I appreciate, you know, four more with Lana's perspective of just how she had to grow and how there was so much journey for her growing up after Clark, you know, revealed himself, his powers of Superman. But I think three is the one I think pops just for the, the bigness of it and gotcha. with the virus and what he's doing. And it feels like, okay, we we're doing more of a classic comic book story, you know, with that issue. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a good story. Like it's good. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, but I like, I like that so much of this story is all built up to building to more of traditional Superman stories. Like we, we, we touch on Lois, you know, even though number two is her perspective, but we haven't really cemented the Lois Clark relationship. We're not there yet. Well, so that's what I was, that's what I was getting at. And for me, like I enjoyed all of the issues, including the second one, but I feel like the, I feel like issue number two from Lois's perspective was the... The, I don't know what the best word is, but the the lightest. Uh, whereas I feel like in issues one, three, and four, I feel like not only you're getting great insight into Superman through the eyes of others, but you're getting a really great presentation of the perspective of Jonathan, of Lex. Like I feel like issue three does a great job of encapsulating at least this incarnation of Lex and what he's mm -hmm. about and mm -hmm. what makes him tick. And the fourth issue with Lana really shedding some light on what her whole journey has been, which has, you know, you know, taken place largely off panel. Whereas mm -hmm. with Lois, and I feel like maybe part of the quote unquote problem here is that, you know, for really, I would say now that most of the modern age of comics, she's known that Clark is Superman. They've been in some level of relationship. She's known him on a deeper level. This is kind of pulling back, right? And showing her at an earlier point in time, her perspective on Superman is so much more limited 
So I, I don't know. I, it's like, I, I don't think it's a bad issue or anything like that. But to be perfectly honest, and this is going back to Brian's question, you know, do I wish we had gotten a different perspective? I, you know, in an ideal world, it would have been great if, I know there's only four seasons, but if this had been more issues and we could have incorporated more characters. But part of me almost feels like this could have been a Jimmy or a Perry issue. I was going to say that I think from Perry would have been an interesting because it's this authority figure. It's a editorial figure as he's like taking the stories that Kent's presenting, what Lois is presenting, whatever Jimmy's digging. And it's just kind of putting it all together and him being older. Um, I kind of look at, at uh, this one, number two, in a sense, like this is kind of your, uh, your montage, you know, like at the beginning, like, Here's everything Superman's been going up to. Quick, quick, quick. All these saves, all these actions. Look what he's doing. It's kind of your quick action. Um, this is where he is now, Superman, um, in the world of Metropolis. No, totally. Though, well, speaking of the world of Metropolis, I think the part of issue number two that uh, actually stands out the most is when Clark goes back to Smallville. He's lonely. Mm -hmm. Lonely. And he goes home for a visit and finds out that Lana's been gone for years uh, after her aunt passed away. Uh, by the way, in four all seasons, we're not in the territory of friendly Aunt Nell from Smallville. This is a more severe, strict aunt yeah. uh, who, you know, raises Lana, steps in when her, when her parents aren't there. But uh, the aunt has passed and Lana's moved away and Clark learns that. But uh, what was really was interesting about Clark's return and he go, he pals around with Pete and they go to the general store and all that as they always do. But he expresses to Martha that, you know, he feels out of place in the city and he thought he would feel at home back in Smallville, but even that doesn't really feel right to him. He feels out of place there. Um, I was thinking about this. It's kind of weird. I, I can't really answer this because I, I never really went away. I mean, I didn't go away to college. I commuted to Fordham from lower Westchester and then I ended up going to law school in the same area and then settling essentially in, in, a, in the general area. So I've not really had that sense of really going away and then coming home and feeling kind of out of place. I know you've moved around more. I mean, have you have you felt like what Clark felt in this issue? Yeah, I, I mean, yes, I have to some degree. Like, you know, my dad was in the military when I was young. We moved a lot through school. And it wasn't until I hit high school, really, that we we stopped. And it always gave me kind of a foundation of not feeling like I have home. Because um, even when I went to college, I weren't like, you know, 20 some minutes away. Um, but in the same context, I do understand that because I kind of equate it to when you graduate, like I, you know, I look at some of my friends who graduated, who love, who played football, who loved the school. And like, when you're graduating, it's all about you, the senior. Yeah. Like, and then when school starts again, the cycle continues and you go back, you know, to the, to, to the football game on Friday night, you know, because I remember going with some of my friends like, hey, let's, you know, let's go and check it out. And I just kind of tagged along. But you have that feeling of this doesn't quite feel right because I'm back here, but I'm like, I shouldn't be like I've moved <laughs> on, but I'm trying to hold on and uh, go back to how things were. And nobody cares anymore. Like, oh, pff, you graduated. Who cares about you anymore? You know, and it, it's the you can't go home again kind of thing and how time moves on and. When we're, when we're there and we're in it, we don't really feel it. But then the absence and the return, we see how things progress. And I, I get that. I mean, what's funny is when my brother and I went to college, we were in our third year. Um, it feels right. Yeah, third year. My parents sold their house and moved. 
And so the foundation that we had for the past five years um, was gone. And so there were, so when we went home to our parents' house, it wasn't the home that we had spent our teenage, latter teenage years, high school years in and everything that we had kind of cultivated. It was our parents' house. <laughs> and I, yeah. so... No, I hear you. I, uh, the closest that I can equate it to is, as you know, in my other projects, I've spent a lot of time exploring and discussing my local comic shop where I shopped and worked for many years. And the, the owners, workers, customers uh, really form this community. And we go out to, to dinner on Saturdays after the shop closed for many years. And the shop uh, is, is no longer in operation. It's been gone almost a decade now. And over the past, I would say half a decade, uh, at least, you know, we really don't get together all that much. The bonds are always there that, that love will never be lost. I'm quoting the song from uh, fast and furious, but, uh, you know, that, that community, that community remains. And, and I, you know, really became like family, but we've had really just a couple of like big group gatherings over the past few years. And, and the last one that we had, which was around Memorial day. I kind of had a feeling, I think, akin to what Clark experienced in this issue and, and what you were talking about, where it was great to see everyone. The dynamic was different. It wasn't because we're not together in the same space, having new adventures together. It was just a lot of reminisce, you know, reminiscing, catching up, right? Mm. Uh, you know, they were asking me, oh, what do you think about James Gunn taking over the DC stuff and in the back of my head, I'm like, you're clearly not listening to my podcast, but that's all right. Right. <laughs> I've had that too. I've had a lot of those where people are like, hey, do you want to talk about this? Dude, I, I, I did like two episodes ago. <laughs> but but it's a, taking the ego out of it. But what, what I realized <laughs> is like, I I have an outlet now for talking about all of this stuff. It's not like, oh, I don't want to talk to, to, to those old right. friends, but it's like, well, I, you know, I spent two hours talking about what I think about Superman legacy. So I don't, it, it doesn't satiate that need to, to talk about the stuff the way that it used to when we have those dinners. And so I came away from that dinner, like it was lovely to see everyone, but it was just kind of like, oh, this is, like, this is not what it was when we would be mm-hmm. all at the store together all day and having, you know, weird encounters with annoying customers. And then we go to the store, we talk, we go to dinner and we talk about it. And I wasn't podcasting. So I was really excited to talk about the latest movie or news or whatever. Like none of that was present. And so I, I just kind of came away from that. It was kind of bittersweet. Like it was nice to see everybody, but it was also the sense of, oh, you know, this is not what it was. And and I, that, when I was reading this, that's the main thing that kind of came to mind. I was like, I get what Clark is talking about. Like you can't go home again in that quite that way. Mm-hmm. It's everything in that time period is there at that time period. Other people move on with their lives. Little things change. Um, there's a great, um, if you have Disney Plus, one of their little animated shorts, I think it's called Home Again or something like that. I haven't watched it in like a year or two. But it's about a guy coming home, like after college, and then other points in his life. And as he's walking, he's seeing things how it was when he left or when he was younger, and then what it is now. And it's it's a really strong emotional um, short, and I think it perfectly encapsulates just the passing of time and how we want to feel safe, and that's what Clark wants to do. You know, as he comes home, like, oh, I'm safe. I know how it is. But there is that point in our lives where we have to leave the safety. You know, we, we can come back, but it's like, we can't come back to hide. And I feel like, you know, getting into like book four, that's what Clark kind of does. He comes back to hide and you have, um, it's a juxtaposition that like you have Pete who never really went anywhere, who never did anything. And he's has this bitterness towards Clark and Lana 
about the lives that they left Smallville and he feels, you know, he got left behind. And because he was the one who wanted to leave. Like he was the one who's like, as soon as we graduate, like I'm out of here. And he's the one who ends up being a a townie, right? He sticks around. I, I, you know, the more we talk about this, like it would have been neat if you could have done, if they had not a second book, but like a collection of shorts that were in each season with the different characters we've discussed, like from points of view of even Pete Ross, like you go like right after graduation, you have a story about Pete seeing Clark leave, then Lana and just how he feels being there in Smallville when he, like you said, he was the one that wanted to go the whole time. Like he's your, I want to get out of here. And it's the others that had the stronger love for the town that actually go. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They're also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On to Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Hey, it's Bill Bodkin, editor-in-chief of ThePopBreak.com. Join myself, Amanda Rivas, Al Manorino, and a cavalcade of awesome guests on the Socially Distanced Podcast, the flagship podcast of ThePopBreak.com. And it's Amanda Rivas. If you're a pop culture-obsessed nerd like we are, then you need to make Socially Distanced an integral part of your life. We talk all the things, Marvel, Star Wars, you know, everything on Disney Plus, pretty much, as well as the hottest trending shows and news in the world of pop culture. This is definitely Al Manorino and not Bill Bodkin. So listen to the Socially Distanced podcast every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so we can eventually get Disney Plus to give us advertising money. Please, we could use the money. I I have children. Actually, speaking of Pete, one thing that really made me laugh over the course of this miniseries, as well as that Sam's story uh, from the supplemental material, is Jonathan, twice in this collected edition, talks about Pete as a little bit of him goes a long way. And I just thought, <laughs> I just thought it was funny that, that Pa has this view of him. It reminds me of some of the friends I had where it's like, yeah, like, oh, man, don't you love them? Yeah. Your parents are like, yeah, they're okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. They're like, yeah, but, uh, you know, they don't really know what to say, but they have that same kind of like, yeah, just, it's a lot, son. Like, I want to take that kid in strides. So. One other side note before we get into the Lex uh, of this in the fall issue is I have to imagine Loeb is a fan of It's a Wonderful Life because there's this recurring bit of Pete right? Rubbing the elephant and saying, I wish I had a million dollars, which is very akin to what George Bailey does uh, in It's a Wonderful Life. But also in the fourth issue, there's this moment between Martha and Lana where Martha says, you know, the right woman can help the right man find the answers he's looking for, which again 
is very similar to what Ma Bailey says to George about Mary right before yes. George goes off and they have that famous scene together. So I can't imagine that's a coincidence. That feels like a pretty direct homage. It does. Like I, I, you know, when I said, I was thinking about Pete and his kind of arc that we don't have. I was like, I could see Pete having a very George Bailey aspect before he has the moment of like, it's a wonderful life moment where he's just kind of like, he wants to get out, but he's the guy that's stuck here, you know? And oh, that would have been really the, good, man. You're right, man. Like that would have been a good, ah, uh, a missed opportunity for Pete. We have the end where Lana says, you know what? Maybe I'll give Pete Ross a call. Like, and that could have been like his turning point of accepting um, his life in not that his life is horrible, but you know, I think this book is like a meditation. Like you read it once, you're like you get it, but then you just think about it. And it's so, and I don't like to say simple, but like I say it in the sense of like, there's not a lot of words. Some of the pages have very few words, but everything is so there for a reason from, from exactly how the art is done to what words are chosen and why the more you think on it, the more it resonates. And then you go back to it and you get more out of it. And it's definitely, <clears throat> I feel like it's one of those books and I'm, when Solomon reads it, he's like, oh, I liked it. It was cool. And then we'll go back years later and like, let's do it again, son. And he'll get more out of it, especially, you know, when he gets up in years. But Absolutely. So this Lex issue, and we actually use this as one of our, uh, you know, uh, homework assignments when we did our big uh, Lex event a couple of years ago. Uh, and we were looking at the modern, you know, the, the post-crisis burn uh, iteration of the character, which is very much what, what this, this incarnation of Lex falls into here. And to your earlier point, right, the meaning of the seasons. So it's no coincidence, right, that Lex gets the fall issue. Uh, so you start off with a bit of a fall from grace for Lex. He's been arrested and uh, you know, he has to deal with the, with the fallout of that. But then by the end of the story, you know, Clark has undergone a fall of his own, this crisis of, of conscience doubting himself after Lex, you know, though Clark doesn't know the full details, at least suspects Lex has unleashed this virus across the city. Um, but when, when Clark confronts him, of course, as Superman, Lex spins it as, Hey, we don't know where your powers come from. Maybe they're alien. And Superman even says alien, because again, at this point in the mm -hmm. in the story, <laughs> I guess we haven't gotten to the end of John Burns' Man of Steel, where he, all the Kryptonian business is downloaded, and then he knows where he comes from. Uh, but Lex is like, you know, this could be you could have exposed people to this. And even aside from that, the poor chemist who Lex manipulates and sets up as a hero to seed the clouds and and save the city ultimately uh, succumbs and perishes, and and Clark is unable to save her. And so Lex, I mean, it's a really, uh, you know, sinister moment where Lex is like, well, get out of here, leave before, you know, you fail all of us. And so there really is this, um, this, this fall for Clark, uh, at this juncture of the story. I mean, it's so strong of what Lex gets into Clark's mind that Clark, even if you think about steps, take a step back, like loses his inability to be logical because, Oh, maybe it's from you. You grew up in Smallville, bro. You use your powers off and on. Nobody in Smallville has been affected. None of this has happened. So this is Lex getting inside your mind in your own doubts. And you're, you're not thinking logical or rational. You're letting him control you. And I think that also comes from like, you know, this isn't a time where Lex and Clark are kind of like peers. You know, Lex is older 
um, than Clark. I would say he's got a good 10 years at the least on Clark. Um, in this, and you know, I find this, this Lex is cr creepy and calculating. And one of the creepiest parts in this, um, issue is if you have the trade is on page 118 when he's getting shaved and the lady nicks him and he's like, you made a mistake. I forgive you. And that's it. Like, that's where they leave it. They don't go like back to like, he had her fired. He had, you know, whatever. That's where they leave it. And to me, that's almost scarier because we've seen Lex do horrible things to people. And in this, you know, with what he's doing to that chemist, you know, eyes taped open, um, kind of feeding her this information about Superman and all this and the hero. And we, we get a nice callback um, to Action Comics number one. Right. Cover. And this is the woman that Superman had saved in the fire at the end of the previous issue. And, and even at that point, she describes Superman as her angel. And when Lex finds her at the end of issue number two, she's already built this shrine to Superman in her apartment. So she's worshiping him at an unhealthy level to begin with. And then Lex takes that and manipulates her further, like you said, with the eyes taped open and just kind of programming her and turning her into this, this quote unquote superhero named Toxin. Uh, in order to ostensibly help Superman. But of course, again, all part of Lex's plan to make Superman fail or feel that he's failed. I mean, I'm just going to say that uh, Toxin doesn't sound very superhero-y to me. No. <laughs> a, little, a little bit more villainous, but you know. But no, I agree with uh, you about how, you know, kind of unsettling it is when, with the, when, you know, the woman cuts him shaving. It's, um, it's interesting, right? Again, we've talked a lot about Lex and you were part of that event that I was referencing. It, the reason for Lex's... The reason for Lex's animosity towards Superman can take different forms and has taken different forms over the various eras and media adaptations. So it can be that they have a past in Smallville and he blames Superman for his baldness. It can be that he blames him for turning his back on him and not trusting him. It can be that there's more of this ideological opposition to the very idea of Superman or that he views him as a threat or that he's limiting public uh, or, or, you know, the humanity's potential, right? Because he can do all of this for them and people can never attain this. This issue takes a very specific track, again, in keeping with this era of the comics, I suppose, but it's all framed as, and we get this through Lex's narration, a love story between a man and his city. And this mm -hmm. idea that Lex built up Metropolis, literally and figuratively. He gave it an identity. He was the one that people looked to and now they're looking to someone else and he feels betrayed. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily, and I'm not saying that that's all there is to this Lex, but at least in terms of what's presented to us in this issue, that's really the angle that it takes. And while that's not necessarily to me the most interesting representation of who Lex is, uh, I think it it definitely works. And I like the whole idea of the love story between the man and the city. And I think we get a lot of really great pieces of insight here into why Lex is the way he is when he talks about how, you know, you have to talk to the public sometimes like children, right? And this idea of, you know, I have to explain my position. My position is never wrong. Self-pity is for lesser men. You need to get on with your work. Uh, all of that. I feel like there's a lot that really comes out, but at the same time, kind of really framing it in terms of this love story and, and, and the jealousy that he feels. How did you like that as the angle and the reason in this particular story? Oh, 
I liked it because he's trying to play Clark in his or Superman was was um, at his own game, you know. Of you took my adoration away, you made me look like a fool. Um, you know, he says famous fleeting, but Lex Luthor is forever. And That's then a the great line, such a great line. Yes, the hauntingness of when we're cutting—I say cutting, like—but when we're going through. Um, seeing the actions that's going on at the Daily Planet, and you have the panel of Luther saying truth, justice, and then he has the full page in the American way. And coming from Luther, that has a whole different, you know, meaning behind it. Um, and I can see that Lex is like the he feeds off the ad, who he is, his skills, his admiration. I mean, we saw that in the previous one when with the negotiation. Or he's like, watch me, I got, you know, I can do this. And Superman right then took it away. He stole his thunder. He stole his power. And slowly Lex Luthor isn't what he was. So he's like, he's putting Superman in his place. So he can, and it's it's childish, but it works. Um, It is. And I I think that one of the things, I guess this is another thing that kind of stood out to me a little bit more here. I'm not saying that, Superman was in the wrong in anything he did. I think any of his actions or his behavior towards Lex, it was justified. (laughs) However, when you kind of put it all together, Lois specifically cites the way Superman talked to Lex in the previous issue and how nobody does that. But then even more so in issue three, when Lex is on his way back home on the helicopter after spending the night in jail and being released and Superman gets in the path of the helicopter and it's a pretty striking image. It's a double page spread mm-hmm. and you see him through the, the front window of the helicopter and he's just pointing towards LexCorp tower, basically saying though, he's not using any words, basically like you go there and you stay there, like really putting Lex in his place literally and figuratively. And obviously this just has the effect of further provoking Lex and adding fuel to the fire. And it was just interesting. I, I liked it because especially that moment outside the helicopter, arguably was Clark going a little bit too far and maybe a bit of, of hubris there, which is mm-hmm. interesting, but totally normal and natural, especially in his early days. He's kind of still sorting out exactly what he's going to do, but it was just kind of interesting. I think on that same notice, he is yet to experience how far and what Lex is willing to do. You know, such as what's going to happen here with Toxin. You know, Clark doesn't think like that. Doesn't think Luther would do something like that. Doesn't really understand. I think that's the other thing. Is he doesn't get to understand the mindset psychology of a man like Lex. Um, and Clark is young. Let's point that out. Like, <clears throat> you know, let's say, you know, he left Smallville. Maybe this is five I'd say it's under 10 years, maybe about five, maybe six since he graduated. So he's in his early twenties and yeah, there's some, you know, there's a different level of expression of how you are when you're younger like that. And he might not think of it like that, but he doesn't know the depths of who Luther is. This is their first tango. They're first starting out, figuring each other out and, He's, you know, he thinks he's putting Luther in his place and he's standing up, but he doesn't understand what Luther's retaliation style is going to be. Totally. This is also a Clark who hasn't yet experienced kryptonite. 
Yep. Right. And I know this this was part of a different episode, but speaking of Tim Sale, that miniseries that he did where the that story Great arc companion. from Superman Confidential, yeah, of of Superman Kryptonite, where he initially doesn't know what the upper limits are. Is he truly invulnerable? Like every time he goes up against something, there's this fear or at least question of, oh, is this the thing that's finally going to do me in? And he has a couple mm -hmm. of kind of hairy, hairy situations, but he's always okay. And then he encounters kryptonite. So yeah, I think that probably feeds into this as well. If he has been invulnerable and assumes he is without limit, uh, maybe that, you know, kind of uh, emboldens him uh, to some extent. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to see again, how he provokes Lex and then how, how Lex responds. And you know, the other thing I was thinking about when you see everyone collapsing in the daily planet, right? It, you know, this was, this was right after kingdom come. It felt very kingdom come esque a la the Joker's gas attack yeah, yeah. on the daily planet. in in that story, I mean, thankfully everyone here lived, they were just incapacitated, uh, except for, you know, that star lab scientist who was in a sealed chamber and Lex, uh, who of course would be prepared for the scenario. I do love though, when, when Superman is like, how, you know, how likely would it be if I were to smash this glass and pull you outside? Like how quickly would some employee of yours show up with an antidote? But he's not willing to test that theory, but he at least is savvy enough to, to call it out. I would almost like me personally as Superman, I would, uh, slowly like use my heat vision to pick a point and melt the glass in the corner just to allow outside air to seep in. Yeah. Just to watch, to see. Um, but I also think about, I'm thinking about like Clark's journey through this, right? This could be the more he's most embracing himself, going back to like that. I am kind of, so I am humorous. I am this. Like he's really kind of accepting it. So like he's putting forth the biggest image of himself. Like you go there, like, you know, like you said, this is his moment where he's kind of risen and he's being a little bit more dominant. And then Luther takes him down a peg. And that's their game, right? And of course, um, you know, this where they, uh, with the whole toxin thing, she puts it into the air. And then right after she saves everybody and everyone's waking up, she dies. And that's all Luther's play to play into Clark's emotion because it was the woman that he saved that now he can't save. Right. And, and, you know, it was engineered that way. And Clark is emotional enough that he doesn't realize Lex has played him. The Lex had engineered this for him. Or even if he does, like he still, quote unquote, failed this woman who had placed so much faith in him. But in terms of Lex's play and what he engineered, I think, like I said, there's so much insight that we get into Lex's psyche uh, through the narration. But I think the most illuminating bit is when he's recounting his childhood and how his father would physically hit him and how his father would say, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And Lex's response as a child was to not cry or, or beg or plead, but just stare at his father the entire time. And Lex explains the lesson that he learned from his father is to always give people what they want, but always for a price, right? Mm -hmm. So- He's going to save the people of Metropolis. I mean, from the virus, he unleashed on them, but he's going to save the people of Metropolis. But this woman who worships you is going to die. There's always going to be that price. Um, like I said, in terms of my ideal version of Lex, I like maybe a little bit more meat on the bone, figuratively. I don't mean <laughs> physically. I actually prefer <laughs> kind of that 
fit uh, Lex who can engage a little bit more. But but in terms of of you know really kind of fleshing out this version, this incarnation, I, I think there's uh, there's there's a lot here. I really I found this to be quite compelling. And when it ends with Clark on the doorstep of the Kents, it's you know really kind of this low. It's the low point in his emotional mm-hmm. journey here, where uh, he's gone off. He's had these victories. But now he's been he's kind of been brought back down to earth here and he's gone back to the one place, even if it's even if he doesn't feel quite at home the way he used to there, it's still his safe place. It's his quote unquote fortress of solitude. It's it's the farm, you know. <clears throat> yeah. And I think I was thinking about this. The last thing I want to say about fall is we are slowly building Lois kind of in the background because she has the moment about the LL initials and he's like, Lana Lang. And she's like, but you know, someone else with double L initials and it's kind of cute. So it's like, there's the hints of what's to come. You know, I think once he gets past this, cause like I said, like we said at the beginning, like the latter three seasons are all that same year. So it's like, you know, when this book ends, there's more story to come. Like, you know, things are moving forward to more of like the status quo of Clark that we know. Totally. So with issue four, Winter, from Lana's perspective, honestly, we've already, I think, addressed a lot of the the major points here, you know, earlier in our in our conversation. But again, Clark and Lana reunite. They catch up with Pete. Like you said, Pete kind of takes them to task because they've both been out there in the world and now here they're kind of back with their tail between their legs and uh, you know, Pete's been kind of holding down the, a la George Bailey, he's been holding down the mm-hmm. fort in Smallville. I do have to say though, I know a little bit of Pete goes a long way, but I did love the moment where of that quartet playing cards, one of them is is in the hospital, he isn't there, and they invite Clark to join, and Pete's like, why don't you join them, Clark? I'll see you in 20 or 30 years. And it's, you know, mm. a, a dig at the guys and Clark, you know, t- mm-hmm. <laughs> but- It's a dig, it's dig at all of them, like. A dig at all of them, but it was just kind of a, a funny moment, and because again, it tracks with what we've seen, you know, all this time has passed, but these guys are just kind of always there. It's just that, that consistency, that familiarity that you find, uh, in the town. And then of course, I, there was, you know, a few moments here and there, uh, Mar- Martha and Jonathan realizing that Lana knows the secret that Clark had told her. I thought that was a nice, a nice moment. Uh, you know, chief Parker showing up to warn them of the flood. Uh, and then, you know, really the, the big climax of this where Clark gets his groove back and yeah. and saves and saves the town. I thought it was such a nice bookend where you have the natural disaster in the form of the tornado in the first one and now the flood here and I love that Lana was able to give Clark that pep talk that he needed about how that kind and caring and noble guy she knew back then is still in there and just because you can do all of these things it doesn't make it any easier to be who you want to be um but she leaves him with this with this uh, command, you know, this inspiring uh, bit of advice to go make go make things safe, Superman, uh, and and that's exactly what he does. You know, I'm fl- I'm looking through like it's it's interesting because it's winter. We start off with all the snow, but then all of a sudden it gets replaced with the rain for the flood and everything. Um, it's biblical. <laughs> it is. Um, what I was going to say is you want to get into this Clark psyche. Not only has he returned home, but they make a, Lana makes a dig that he's wearing his old school jacket. Yes. And it is really a way of like retreating. Like, okay. I don't know if you were ever like that, like did it, but like I had a certain style of clothes that I loved to wear when like I was in high school age. 
and stuff. Like I never was really much into jeans. Like I, I wore more like Dickies and uh, like not dress pants, more like that style. Um, and I had certain shoes, like styles that I loved and I wore. And then I remember years later, I was like, I want to buy a, you know, a pair of Dickies. Right. And I bought them and I put them on and I was like, it didn't feel right. It felt like I was putting on a costume of a person I used to be. Like, you know, I, I had outgrown that style, that sense. And I couldn't wear those anymore because I felt like I was trying to be who I used to be and I'd grown past that. And then with that same kind of mentality is Clark slipping into the comfort of his old jacket. You know, like, oh, back when things were so innocent and pure. And that's why I say like maybe about five years you know, since he graduated. So it's not too much. Um, we don't know if this Clark went to college or whatever. Um, but it's not too much of since high school that it's really creepy and awkward. But, you know, he's wearing it. And, and we see more of a juxtaposition between Clark, who's Superman, who's gone on, and then, this, and then Lana, who's now back home. I thought that was interesting that she is back. Earlier when we returned to Smallville, she wasn't there. But how she has grown. And she's not trying to go backwards. And, you know, like you said, he she gives her him the talk. She kind of provides him some support to help push him forward. And because um, he's kind of scared, I think, to embrace just the changes of growing up and the and even without all the Superman stuff. But back to our good fan, um, our good friend that he saved the gas station attendant, Mr. Something with a K, I don't know how to pronounce the way he's drawn when they see Superman flying over the town and they say, that's, that's, and he just says, yep. It kind of, like I said, I think you can make a good reading that he knows it's Clark, but he just accepts it and that's yep. okay. Like, I think that once again, one of the great strengths of this is of this entire story is that it shows the importance of where Clark grew up in informing the person and the hero that he becomes. And yes, more than anything else, it's that upbringing with Jonathan and Martha. But I think in spending the amount of time that we do in the general store and on main street and with Pete and with Lana and with that quartet and with chief Parker and pastor Lindquist, I think it, it shows you the value of the town. And Jonathan even talks about this uh, in that first issue about how, Corn, when you're growing corn, once again, with the corn, if it doesn't take root, it can shoot up too fast, right? If you don't have the right, if you're, you don't have the roots, right? And ultimately with this idea, though, it's not said explicitly, but you know, it's right there that Clark has strong roots formed in Smallville. And there's a, a very famous interview that Christopher Reeve did that has made the rounds on social media. I'm sure you've seen it where he's talking about Superman, just the, the core being principles, being a friend, being a good neighbor that, yep. Those are the the core ideals that are represented in the character and that he tried to bring to the character. And I, I think certainly did. And, and I think kind of this idea of this small town of knowing everybody of being neighborly. Uh, I, I think that's what this goes a long way to show how that helped form the person he is. So again, as, as fans of the Smallville television show and of that time in his life, it's not a surprise. I think we were kind of easy marks for this, even though, you know, this came out yeah. before that, but I think it's probably in part why, you know, we keep coming back to it. And this whole idea of, I will quote Smallville once again, that is your time in Smallville with Jonathan and Martha Kent and all the people there that made you a hero. 
so I just kind of, I like the, how this shows you the role of the town and just kind of what it means to him and for him to have that place. I mean, I couldn't say that better myself. It shows humble beginnings, but you know, as I'm reading through this, I think I'm more fascinated that they have this flood and then after the flood, there's snow back all over the ground again. I think that's what I'm more fascinated by. I'm like, wait a minute, how this work? But you know, you're talking about the corn. I was looking at um, the pastor states why a tree may have its leaves turn brown and go bare. There will come a spring where that very same tree will burst full of blooms, only stronger for the test of winter. And I think that's where we're we're ending this story on winter. The idea of the cycle. And that Clark's gonna come out back as Superman bloomed as he went through his 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 trials, you know, and that um he is coming more, you know, into fruition of him as a person, as a hero, as a character, and just taking that, you know, he left Smallville as Superman. I mean as Clark, sorry. He's now, in a way, you can look at this in the end of winter when he returns to Metropolis, he's now leaving. Smallville as Superman. That's beautiful. That's I, I love that. You're right. He leaves as Clark, comes back in defeat as kind of someone in between. <laughs> it's still trying to figure it out and you're, and leaves fully formed. So, yeah. You know, because like we have, we even have like the kind of callback on the porch because you have now, instead of the boots, you have the skates and you have Jonathan and Martha and now on the porch and Lana in the snow and Clark in the background are Superman, like make the distinction. And she says, take care Clark, Lana does. And then when you turn the page, he's back in Metropolis. And, you know, he's back at the, the Daily Planet. He turns in and like, you know, the last page, the last pages is, you know, we have Jimmy and Lois and Clark and he's, he's a little bit more like, I don't say cocky, but he's got more of what I kind of look at like that, the George Reeves, style Superman, like the almost wink at you kind of Lois, like, you know, Lois, I got the story kind of thing. Just lucky, then, I guess, as he says, yeah. which is an excuse we've heard many times, but there's a, there's a charm to it. Yeah, no, there's like a, maybe swagger is too strong a word, but yeah, like there's, yeah, there's yeah. a quality that he didn't have before, for sure. And, you know, of course we have the callback with the kid, um, uh, Trevor, fallen, chasing his cat off the snow and Clark catching him. And, uh, you know, he actually says, good to meet you, Trevor or Trev. He says, all everyone calls me Trev. And he, it just feels like with the, you know, kind of like the introduction of good to meet you, you know, it's that idea of like, you're making home, the people around you, like you're, you're being more, um, personal. So it's like, you know, I'm Superman. Nice to meet you. And, um, of course we have Lex looking down, complaining, you know, about him and just kind of it leaves us in a place like i said of the the status quo kind of is coming like you know um so yeah because he says a lot the, the last lines is as for me i'll always be staying in smallville um or it's from lana you know like we said earlier is like we have superman's last line is folks call me superman and then lana is like i'll be staying in smallville with some new hopes and dreams and prayers, and maybe I'll give Pete Ross a call. So, like, 
it shows everyone's moving forward in some way. Which puts a more hopeful, positive spin on their relationship than we actually got in the Triangle Era comics, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, but yeah. yeah it's, it's a great note to end on. And again, I just want to reiterate what you had was shared earlier that Lana expresses in, in that issue, because it really, I think, just kind of sums all of this up, this idea of whenever she would hear people question, why would, how could there be a Superman? Why would there be someone who uses their powers in this way? All I needed to know was Clark. Like Clark is the key. And of course the key to Clark is Jonathan and Martha and the people in Smallville he came up with. And uh, that's the answer to the question, right? Of how could someone possibly not be corrupted by this power? Um, and it's not about Superman. It's about who he actually is, this this Clark Kent. It's part of why I always like the idea of Clark gradually getting power. Like he has like this foundational powers like strength and, you know, and vulnerability to a point, you know, and speed, but then they get stronger and more developed because I think it allows him to develop himself before he just has everything. That I could, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, and certainly that I think that's one of the, the post-crisis changes that, uh, you know, really sings because it, it just, and it allows you to now kind of cultivate that metaphor of the, of, you know, the powers teenage, emerging and the teenage years yeah. uh, and all of that. But it also, again, plays into like this story, the first issue doesn't really work the same if he's had all of his powers since he was a baby. Like the whole idea is that he's changing. He's going through changes and Jonathan and Martha's guidance can only kind of carry them through so much. There's so much that they don't know. Uh, and they, none of them know the upper limits of all of this. So uh, no, I agree. I think that's a post-crisis change that really, that totally works, especially if you're going to tell uh, this kind of story. Uh, you know, we, we sung the praises of the art rightfully. So one thing, and I know we talked about this when we did our Tim Sale tribute, but I, I, I just, I love how he draws Clark, especially, I mean, generally, but especially when he's in, in the, in the newsroom, like he's just, he's, he's from the country. He's this big, you know, built like an he's ox. a big, thick farm boy. Yeah. And he like really stands out. Of course that plays into this kind of, uh, you know, isolation that he's feeling like he's, he doesn't fit in, you know, in, in more ways than one. Uh, but I love that. And then when you get to something like All-Star Superman and you see Frank Whiteley's rendition, uh, you know, very much in, in keeping with that. So uh, I, I like that. I think that's a cool way to represent the character visually. I I like it because he is just a big corn-fed farm boy. I think I saw that in a, a, uh, somewhere in an article. Absolutely. I remember reading that. And what, what bums me out about like with Tim Sale is when he passed that year he was supposed to be at Cincinnati Comic Expo. And my friend and I were, that was one of the reasons we were going to go. And then of course, you know, he passed and it was just kind of stuck because we both wanted to meet him and get things signed. Um, but I will say for this story, one thing I really do appreciate with Jeff Loeb as far as like the DC stuff, because I've read more of his DC stuff than his Marvel. I have read the Marvel. I just don't know it as well other than the Spider-Man's. Um, Cause I'm glad it's not a mystery. Yes. <laughs> okay. Cause like my friend Brian and I always talking to talk about like how sometimes I feel like Jeff Loeb ends his mysteries a little bit more vague than I would like. I'm talking about you long Halloween and hush. Hush. I know um, I've, I've, I've talked about hush. It's, I know it kind of drives me nuts. I feel like there are certain rules of writing a mystery that hush flies in the face of, but it's still, <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful story and it's a great, great encapsulation of the Batman allies and enemies mm -hmm. and it's a great introduction uh, i think to the character <laughs> but yeah as a mystery it, it's a little frustrating no look he told i think this the story he told was was perfectly fitting for this character uh i yeah i 
I, I, I never had the chance to meet Tim Sale. I, I wish I had. I love his work. I love the two of them together. I know, just real quick, I know Jeff Lope has had his you know, various controversies and I'll kind of leave that there. But looking at the work itself, uh, you know, this is one that, like, like I said before, I've continued to go back to. I know I will continue to go back to, especially as my son gets older and I know mm-hmm. parts of this will continue to resonate even more. And I think as long as we're doing this podcast, I don't know how many more dedicated standalone episodes we do, but it it will always be part of the conversation. I think this is one of those kind of seminal cornerstone books. And like I said at the beginning of this, if someone said like, I don't know where to start, I want to read something Superman, it would probably be this because it's a, it's a truly... I think fulfilling, satisfying, uh, emotional journey. And, and mm-hmm. that's something that I think anyone can kind of connect with. So uh, I, I think this has been fantastic. Know, I think you have to appreciate Superman. And I've had this argument, debate, and everything with people. And I know you have as well. The powers are great. Everyone's like, oh, you like Superman because of powers. No, it's the person. And I think this book is the best way of showing who Clark is. And I'll say Clark because it is Clark finding Superman in this book. Who Clark is and why I resonate with the character is because of him as a person. And I think this is a very great way of just showing him as a person dealing with the emotions and the weight of growing to be Superman and just growing up in general. Um, And it's a great way to know the character before you get into those bigger stories of him fighting aliens and going off into space and you understand who Clark is. Now, my, I got a question for you. With all the animated films that we have had, would you have liked to have seen this done back when they were adapting um, the animated stories and trying to do them in the artwork of the book? Would you have liked... Was this one... Because as I was reading it this time, it was one I really feel like we missed out on. Yes. Um, now, I, I, it will forever be baffling to me what they left on the table in terms of adapting comic book storylines. And I, I agree with you. I mean, the sad thing is that even now when we do get animated adaptations and most recent examples, I think would include Hush and Long Halloween and now Crisis for better or worse, uh, depending on your perspective, but they're done in the house style of whatever mm-hmm. animated universe we're currently in. And I look back and I know I'm a broken record with this, but Superman, Batman, Public Enemies or Apocalypse mm-hmm. or New Frontier Yep. Getting to see these stories brought to life faithfully and particularly in the style of the artists who drew them, it was such a cool experience. Like, I'm so grateful for those few that we got. And yeah, it kind of breaks All-Star. my heart that we didn't get All-Star. Like, it breaks my heart that we didn't get more of the adaptations generally and mm-hmm. specifically adaptations in that style. So I, I would I would love to see this lovingly and faithfully brought to life in the style of Tim Sale. It's like, I... I don't can't foresee that as a possibility anytime soon, but it would be great. I don't see it anytime soon since things are changing and the way that where there are now. And I think there's a reason why crisis is happening like it is right now with all the changes, you know, um, I don't know. Like when I was buying, they used to come with like an insert um, in the Blu-rays where you could log in and it would, and it would be like a questionnaire. Of like, how many do you buy? Have you seen this one? And then, like at the end, it would ask you, like, which ones do you want us to see do? And one that I always voted for was this, you know, or and Hush was one I always, you know, clicked on. And I was just like, you know, I think about for better or for worse, what All Star the movie was, 
you had that style where the artwork, even when they tried to do um, the killing joke, they, you know, they talked about how they tried to find something very similar to the art style that was, they could animate. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll give them that. So like looking at, you know, Tim sales um, art, I'm like, I think that could have been like, we missed out on something kind of, you know how they, if they would have incorporated a little bit, something like, because like you open the book here and you have like the picture frames and stuff like that. I just see a really good opening credits Yes, with the picture frames kind of filling, telling us little stories, little glimpses, and then into the story. And I just feel this was a missed opportunity for a really great animated film. And like you said, I don't foresee it ever getting done correctly. Sad, but true. But at least we have this. I, I know they put out very recently uh, a, a beautiful absolute edition of it. I, I I didn't pull the trigger on it. I typically have shied away from that format, mostly due to the just the size and the and the readability aspect of it. But I remain tempted, and I might. I, this is one that if I were going to get anything in absolute edition, uh, this would be uh, an exceedingly worthy contender. But whether or not I add it to my shelf, I'm glad that they put it out there. It's so deserving of the treatment. Uh, but at a minimum, again, that recent trade that's there, and that's the one that, I mean, you read it in any form you can, but uh, that current trade, again, under 20 bucks, and you get, again, this mini series that we talked about, plus those supplemental stories. So you get all of the lobe and sale uh, Superman collaborations together. Um, you know, I, th- this is I not a paid advertisement from DC comics. It's just yeah. as a fan from, from this fan to the fans listening, uh, fans of Superman. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, I think a, a great volume to have. I agree. Like that was the digital version that I read, you know, and then of course I have my trade that I've had for years here. Um, you know, that is one that maybe, maybe like, you know, um, I'll do something like I do at the death of Superman where I wrote a little note because Solomon was in this whole phase. He loves doomsday. And I wrote him a note on the inside and I gave him my old trade of the death of Superman. He has in his comic collection. Um, Cause I also was buying all the, the trades where they were, you know, you put them together, you get the Superman symbol and all the spines, you know, my son is fascinated and, um, by that. He has, he's seen that on the shelf and he's like, what? like each one has one piece of it. And then we saw, we were at a comic book store and we saw just like one of them and he like zero right in on it. And he's like, Hey, that's just part of it. So he loved that. <laughs> that's awesome. So maybe what I'll do is I'll save this and, uh, you know, write a message for him in it. And, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll save this and this, this book right here and I'll write him something and I'll save it for when he graduates and just kind of give it as like a parting gift. And, I'll buy the one, you know, that new one, because I really like having those backup stories, you know, because I don't like having two of something like it's just it's me. Um, unless I have like the individual issues and then I buy a trade. But no, that's I, a beautiful uh, idea. I the, I guess the very last thing I'll say, and we, we, we touched on this before that, you know, this is a story divorced from all of the the Kryptonian trappings and that aspect of of the origin and whatnot. And I don't know there. I'm maybe there are fans out there who who didn't connect with this as much and maybe we're looking for more of those other elements or, or whatever the case may be. I guess what I would say is, you know, though the story doesn't touch on those aspects, it's not to say they're not a part of the character. That's just, that just wasn't the focus here. And so uh, I guess if there's anyone out there who's, you know, maybe you read this and you were like, eh, it really wasn't for me, maybe take another look at it and, and really look at it for the specific purpose that 
I think it was really aiming for and that it achieved in a really beautifully majestic way. <laughs> yeah. I think it's definitely one that analyzed where you are in life when you first read it. Where are you now? And you go back to it and see if it if it strikes you differently. I mean, also, I mean, I think you get more out of it too, like just by little things like the specials you've done about Lex and really looking at different, like, you know, like I've talked about before, like I'm currently on a, on a second podcast I'm part of with my friend Phil, where we're reading all of Superman straight, starting with Man of Steel, John Burns. And there's more you mine out of that, that when you go back and you read certain things like this, you get more out of it because you see a bigger picture at play, even if it's not so direct, like you were talking about earlier. Um, I think you just, with the history of the character and reading more and exposing more, going back to certain stories like this and even All-Star, that's a whole other conversation, but having more knowledge of the different errors and having read silver and gold age stuff, you might come away from a property a little bit different than when you first read it. Absolutely. It, you know, I, I enjoy, I enjoyed this immensely. I was saying to you off mic, we took a little break <laughs> coming into this. I figured oh, this might be a shorter recording because we've talked about four all season so many times. That's what I kind of told my wife and she's like, uh, you okay in there? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> and I know the audience is probably like, like this was going to be less than two hours. Uh, but I think that's a testament to, to the story that even after all of these readings and all of these discussions, uh, there's still so much to, to mine and, to me, hopefully to you and to the audience, like it felt fresh. I don't feel like we were just, you know, rehashing conversations that we said, I always get something new out of this. So I had a blast revisiting and discussing this. You know, anytime you keep going back to something, you know, you, I, there's always a little part of me that's like, is this going to be the time where I, I, I find the flaws or I don't like it anymore? And mm -hmm. thankfully that hasn't happened. And I don't anticipate that it will with this one. So this was a pleasure to revisit. I really enjoy the conversation. I thank you for your time. Uh, so that side podcast you mentioned is Electric Mullet. Mullet, yep. <laughs> and of course, your main show, Krypton Report, available all major podcast platforms and on all major social media channels. You just celebrated nine years of Krypton <laughs> Report. So congratulations. That's quite Thank you. quite Thank the you. achievement. It's just, it's it's really, like I told you, like, it's really fascinating how just you start something as a hobby, you just do it without thinking about it. Time goes on, you just, you know, you just keep going through it and then something clicks like and you look at it you know i started the podcast same year my son was born and i'm like dang he's really been nine years of this and it's like huh wow like that's longer than i've worked at some jobs you know like huh time flies i you know i've recently one of our last episodes i referenced one of our earliest episodes of this podcast and it's like yeah, it was like four years ago i mean it's crazy it's going so quickly but you know this process remains uh, really just a, a beautiful and fulfilling one and our guest on the next episode uh, is justin devoe and at the end of last year you know i was at his wedding and cool. i met him because of podcasting so it's it's a beautiful thing and though you and i still have not occupied the same physical space you know we, we will sometime we you know sometime. i you know i i become such great friends and i can say that about everyone who's been on the show and that's really a beautiful thing so uh i thank you tyler really? i thank you audience always appreciate you tuning in make sure you come back next week and until then as always it's about what you do it's about action Hop in the Supermobile and join us for the spinoff podcast Beyond Metropolis, available exclusively for members of my Patreon community. It's a monthly tour across the DC universe with the signature Digging for Kryptonite style applied to your other DC favorites. Additional Patreon rewards include advanced listens, sponsorships, and more. We offer regular monthly memberships, discounted annual plans, free trials, and a la carte purchases. 
Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato or click the link in the show notes for more. Thank you all. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, Another Exciting Episode in the Adventures of Superman, an episode-by-episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show, available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all.